Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Got a great show today. We've got Dr. Michael Johnson from the New Zealand Initiative. Oh, my goodness. What a eye-opener this is. And it's hit the mainstream. What is happening to the science curriculum? Uh, Michael was leaked a draft proposal from the ministry about what will be in science. And guess what? <laughs> no science. Uh, no science will be in the science curriculum. That's what's happening now. Uh, we have a deep discussion with Michael about that, and uh, you're going to enjoy it. Also, a favourite, Wally Richards, our gardening guru, is on today. So uh, make sure you listen in and hear about uh, Wally's gardening tips. Now, remember, my great enjoyment of the show is the guests I get to talk to, but even better is the feedback that I get. So please, please email me. You can email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. You can text me at 2057. I really love and I find it really rewarding to hear from you and to hear what you make of the show. So please uh, enjoy the show and send me a nice note, even a critical note, even a harsh note. I'm up for it now. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, this is becoming a trendy topic, a popular topic, a topic that people have concerns about, whereas previously it used to only sort of worry the, uh, what do you call them, sort of, I guess, professionals, noggins, whatever, people that are they're warning us for what was happening, but now it's gone mainstream, I guess. We are talking about New Zealand schooling system, and in particular the curriculum, what our children and grandchildren are being taught. And we're very lucky to have uh, with us Dr. Michael Johnson from the New Zealand Initiative. You remember we have done interviews with Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. We've done interviews with Dr. Oliver Hartwich. Got to be a doctor to be there, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have got Dr. Michael Johnson, who is new to us. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Great to now, be here. Great. Now, you've got kids too, right, in the school system? I do, yes. I've got a couple of daughters who are in primary school at the moment. So you have uh, not only a professional interest, but a personal interest in this. Absolutely. Now, you aren't a person coming at this with an axe to grind or with an amateur interest or without having direct experience of the curriculum and education, are you? You actually have quite a background. Yes, I'm a cognitive psychologist by training, and that's a scientific discipline. So I can speak with a bit of knowledge on what a science curriculum should look like in in broad terms. Can I just stop you there? Yeah. I know there's more, but I just, you caught me with cognitive. Cognitive psychology. So cognitive psychology is the science of human information processing. So it's the study of our memory systems, our attention, our perception, this kind of thing. And actually, it, Uh, has quite a lot to say about how we learn. So it does actually uh, have bearing on the question of schooling and how 
especially yeah, teaching absolutely. should occur in, in classrooms. But and I was also at the university, at Victoria University, for 10 years in, in the education faculty. And I've done a, a bit of work on curriculum design and so on in that role. And so where did you do your PhD? That was at Melbourne University mm. more, more year, years ago than I care to count now. Yes. And uh, if it's not rude, what was your PhD thesis on? Uh, quite an obscure topic, as many of course they always are. tend to the, be. So the, more obscure, the more obscure the topic, right, yeah, the more yeah. serious you are. So what I was, uh, was studying was how we recognise objects in three dimensions when they're rotated. So if you think of uh, an everyday object and how it can be rotated in, in three dimensions, the, the way it projects onto your visual system changes as it rotates, right? The, yes. the two-dimensional projection of it is different. And so the question is how we recovered the information to recognise it as the same object when it's being rotated like that. Because if it – yes, because do you see it rotate or do you just see it at two different – well, if you see it from a new point of view, how do you recognise it? So I was yeah, interested in how we can recognise an object from a point of view from which we've never seen it before. So if you're interested, what I did was to uh, make objects out of computer graphics that were just kind of abstract shapes, and then I'd teach people to recognise them from one point of view, and then I'd show them from different points of view and with different degrees of rotation, measure the accuracy and the amount of time that people took to recognise them. It's so interesting, psychology, because um, two things about me. I thought until very, very recently, like only in the last couple of years, I just thought everyone interpreted and saw the world as I did because, you know, it's a world and here's me looking at it. And I could never understand how people could disagree, you know, hmm. be looking at the same thing or doing the same facts and reach a different conclusion. And you suddenly realize that there's a, a, a psychology of how you understand the world is extremely important. And then yep. the next thing that I came to realize is that we have different abilities. And it's not just that I'm stupid because I get lost. If I, 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 I've lived where I live now for three years, if you, if I, you put me in a car, and I drive around the block, I could be lost. And my wife and daughter unerringly know where we are, right? But to me, if it looks slightly different, I'm totally lost. And then the next thing I've realized, I've spent more time with my young children at primary school, helping them learn things. And then you realize that we learn differently. I never appreciated any of that. I just thought we were like little clones of each other. Yeah, well, we're not clones, but I wouldn't like to uh, <clears throat> overstate how different we are. Okay. I, I mean, one of the things that's important in education is to realise that we all have the same memory systems. We all have the same yes. perceptual systems. I mean, people can have disabilities, of course, that, you know, some people are blind and so on. But in the end, um, you know, if you've got normally functioning eyes and ears and uh, you, and brain and so on, then actually the way we learn is remarkably similar. Okay. It's true that people learn at different rates and people have different strengths and weaknesses, yes. but the systems are the same. So if, for example, you take learning to read, so this is something that's been debated for many years, that in fact, yes. so hotly, they call it the w reading wars. Yeah. Uh, 
But actually, the, the scientific evidence is pretty clear that a structured literacy approach is the most effective for everyone. That doesn't mean that everyone will learn at the same rate. Got it. But nobody is disadvantaged by structured literacy. And actually, people with dyslexia and, and conditions like that will learn to read better using structured literacy than any other approach. What and that's because we have the we all have the ability to uh, process visual information. That's the letters on the page, and to learn the alphabetic code. That is how we the the, the letters relate to sound. And when you're first starting out, the most effective way is to learn those mappings between spelling and sound, and that gives you access to about seventy percent of your English vocabulary. If you happen to be learning to read in Te Reo Māori, it gives you access to 100% because the, the mappings are perfect. In English, they're a, a little less than perfect. So there are words that you just have to learn later. But the, oh, uh, Because Te Reo, the language developed, the written language developed in one go. Yeah, well, it, was, it, it didn't yeah. have a, a written system before before the, yeah. um, the colonists showed up. So, yeah. yeah. Tell me, when you say structured literacy, yeah. What does that mean compared to the alternative? Well, structured literacy just literally means learning in, in, a, in an ordered and structured way. But in practice, it means that we start by learning those uh, connections between spelling and sound. And that gives kids an immense head start with reading. They've got to learn about 40 of them. And then they've got access to most of the words they know. Mm. Uh, the alternative approach uh, well, some, sometimes it's called whole language, sometimes it's called a balanced approach. And that's where you get kids to concentrate on maybe the context of the word and the sentence, maybe look at the pictures, maybe look at the first and last letters and, and have a bit of a about? guess about what the word is. <laughs> what was that about? Well, it was very popular for a long time. And in part, that's because, you know, Dame Marie Clay, who was yes. uh, a New oh. Zealander, she started re reading recovery. That was the kind of system that that she went for, and because she became so famous, I think it, it really became almost a sacred cow in New Zealand education. But it's starting to change now. A, a great many schools are shifting to a structured approach and seeing seeing the results improve markedly. Yeah, well, I know my son, who's older son, who's thirty four, I guess. Yeah. He learned at school whole a word, and it was like having them guess. It was like trying to learn Chinese. Yeah. Well, it kind and, of is because in Chinese, yeah. you know, you've got the characters that stand yes. for the whole word. So that's kind yes. of how you have to learn. Although I think they do have some phonological markers in their language. I'm not yeah. an expert on Chinese, but yeah. And I, I, we had to end up teaching him to read at home and telling because he went into reading recovery. He could read when he went off to school, loved yeah. reading. After six months of that whole word stuff, he would throw a book across the room. Yeah. And we ended up teaching him what you call the structured way. We didn't know. We just got some old textbooks. And we had to tell him not to say anything at the school because we're doing it wrong. And now when I went to my local primary school and said, oh, I'm so pleased you're not doing that whole word stuff, the young teachers look at me and don't know what I'm talking about. They, they're all using the phonics approach now, are they? Yeah. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, no. You know, I mean, getting, getting kids to guess words is terrible for them. If yeah, they get into that habit, it means yeah. that, you know, when they're older and they're encountering more complex tests, texts, they're at sea. They don't know what to do. Mm. Well, I had, a lovely, I, had a I had a lovely time where they called for volunteers and I, I agreed to it. And I'd go in once a week. I, I, I would have done more if they'd asked. 
and I'd do it again if they asked again, but I don't know. They haven't after because of COVID. But I would sit with kids who were struggling a little bit, and I'd do literally 10 minutes before school, and I'd do two yep. kids each week. And I was amazed how quickly, yes. six weeks literally of that, and they're away. It's phenomenal, isn't it? A little bit it every day. It's phenomenal. That's right. doesn't have to be a long time every day, but it's got to be regular. That's the thing. And 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 it's your point is that there's those 40 sounds. 40-odd 40, 40 mappings between spelling and sound. So there's obviously ind- individual letters like P maps onto P and T to T and so on. But then we've got digraphs like CH, CH and SH and so on. Um, so interesting. The, yeah, it's not letter by letter, but it's it's some individual letters mapping to individual sounds mm. and sometimes more than one letter. So you got the PhD, and then you went to Victoria University. Actually, there was a stint at NZQA in there in between. Oh, okay. I I, I was six years at NZQA, uh, and interestingly, I started there. I'd never been in the public service before, and I think I can say I never will be again, but it was an interesting time to arrive because this was early 2005, and this was just at the point where there was a massive crisis in the early NCEA system, where there was huge inconsistency in the in the marking of exams between one and year and the next and between different subjects. And it was a huge political storm. The chief executive had to resign and then the board chair resigned and the board was cleaned out and the State Services Commission wrote a couple of damning reports and then the whole organisation was restructured. And after that, it was actually in some ways the making of my career because uh, Barley Hark was appointed as deputy chief executive, and he came in with a brief to make some big changes to the technical aspects of NCA. And um, they, my my skills as as a statist- on the statistical side were um, were suddenly much in demand. So mm. I quickly became a psychometrician, which is somebody who um, is expert in in psychological measurement, which is what exams are. They're a, a way of measuring what people know. Um, and so we did a lot of work on the exam marking, on the moderation of internal assessment and so on over the next six years. And after that, I'd had enough of the public service and I, I got the job at Victoria. And at Victoria, you did what? Well, I was a, a senior lecturer in education and I, I focused on educational assessment, um, on using data from educational assessment to improve teaching and to give good feedback to to kids and so on. So that that was my my area of specialty in that role. And I we'll get on to them. we'll get on to this, no doubt. You're going to be a great resource because we take it. When I say we, I mean sort of we everyone. That data and assessment is the essence of going to school to see how things are getting on. It's not the it's not the point, but you've got to measure. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's that. That's an ideological thing now, right? There's that saying that you you don't you don't make the pig heavier by weighing it, but but of course, if you want the pig to get heavier, it helps to weigh it so you know to feed it more, uh, or whatever. So I think that that's a a kind of bad argument against educational measurement. I think you do have to know where kids are at in order to see who needs the more help and who needs to be advanced and so on. And I noticed that with everything that kids do, that they love the feedback. Oh, of course. You know, you go to to Cub Scouts 
and you love it that you got that badge. Yeah. And you put it on your shoulder lapel and you've got the, you know, you've got your knots badge and you're very proud that you've got it. And other kids don't have their knots badge and you don't get your knots badge just by turning up. You've actually yeah, got so to there's, there's a couple the of things there. Look, you know, it, it's nice to get rewards like badges and certificates and prizes and so on. But actually the real reward is learning itself and mm. feedback. Mm. You know, you, you can say that getting a, a an A plus or a badge or whatever is a sort of feedback, but it's pretty blunt feedback. It doesn't give you any information other than you did well. But the most valuable feedback is actually what you haven't got right yet. Yes. Because that allows you to improve and, and to know what you need to do to improve. Yes. So rather than giving out lots of high grades and lots of badges and so on, I'd, I'd much rather teachers focused on where the child is because they've measured to know where the child is and then to give them good specific feedback about what they need to do to to keep learning and to and to improve and not to lie to them oh no that's a that that's a uh that's child abuse if you do that yes but you can lie to them by saying oh no you're doing great you're doing great yeah no that's that's a terrible strategy uh, and of course you shouldn't talk them down you, you've got to talk up their ability to, mm-hmm. to learn more but you shouldn't uh overplay where they're at either it's important to I mean, you, you needn't compare them with one another. The main thing is, what do you need to do to take the next step? Mm. And now you left the university to go to the, are you at the New Zealand Initiative now full-time? Yes, I am. I've been here full-time for about a year, um, and I started part-time 18 months ago. It's a big step, is it not? I suppose so. so. I, I mean, University to a think tank? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's similar. I'm I, I'm working in the same kind of area, although the brief here is broader. Uh, I write reports on all different aspects of the school system. Uh, so far, I've done one on modern learning environments, these big open plan classrooms, and I, I've done another very broad ranging one on quite a lot of aspects of the education system from curriculum to uh, assessment and uh, how we organise schools and, and so on. Uh, I'm just finishing up one now with our, our adjunct fellow, Stephanie Martin, on teacher training. So that's wow. the next one off the blocks. Wow. Yeah. But it's, it, well, it is a bit different. But look, you know, the university isn't what it used to be. I've been around universities all my life and not, it's not the place I signed up to to be part of anymore for, for, for a number of reasons. I think it's it's become... Uh, quite politically stultified. It's quite hard to have a dissenting opinion there. I'm somebody who tends to say what he thinks, but um, other people feel quite shut down there. And that to me is the opposite of what a university ought to be. You know, we've we've had some polls run by uh, the taxpayer, not the taxpayers union, the free speech union, and also the heterodox academy, which is a group of academics we want to defend academic freedom, and they tend to show that quite a lot of academics who have dissenting views are, are scared to voice them, and that to me is anathema for, at a university. It should be a place where ideas are freely contested, but that is no longer the case, and obviously we've all seen recently you know, massive financial problems in the universities that are resulting in people losing their jobs, so it's not, it's not a terribly happy place anymore to me. No. And um, I remember years ago reading a book by uh, a, a 
philosopher that I hugely loved called W.W. Bartley III, which is a wonderful name. He passed away, sadly, of AIDS. Um, he was a student of Karl Popper in the oh, right. yes. 50s and 60s and resurrected mm-hmm. some of his work. And they had a big falling out and then got back together. It's a great story in of itself. But he wrote a book, and I think it was called Unfathomed Knowledge, Unimagined Wealth, or something like that. And it was a book that shocked me because it was on the universities. And it explained how the university was actually a medieval organization. Originally, yes. The, some of the universities like Notre Dame and in, in, in yeah. Paris, they, they started up in the Middle Ages and they were quasi-monastic organizations at yes. first. Yeah. And how, and this was written, I guess, in the 90s or late 80s, and how his problem was that they were set up on a guild type basis, that this was, you know, this is sociology or this is physics or this is chemistry and and you subdivided and subdivided and subdivided and subdivided the institution and you didn't get out of your lane. Mm And his argument was that sort of like a complete misunderstanding of knowledge. Um, Because as we classically think of it, and of course now I observe from the outside only universities and they're even more medieval and monastic in the sense that you got to say the catechism. Yes, there's a bit of that. Uh, but look, I, I would defend the division of knowledge into different yes. disciplines. I, I think that different disciplines have different methods. You know, physics is not history. It's great to have wide-ranging knowledge, and, and certainly scholars should work together across disciplinary boundaries. But really, to become a master of a discipline is a lifetime's work, and and unless you're a, a very great genius, you, you're not going to be a master of more than one. So I think specialization is important. Of course. You and I are going to have to park that one and come back to it one day because mm-hmm. um, I'm interested in that idea because um, I guess this is a Karl Popper in me because I think uh, they do have the same method at root, but we won't argue it because uh, I'll just park that I, I, I note that and we'll move sure. on. Because I'm a big fan of Popper as well, by the way. Well, his political but, philosophy as well as his scientific philosophy. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And I think we, well, in which case, you're even more upset mm. about what's happening in the curriculum. I'm, because, I'm, very, I'm very upset about the, what the ministry seem to want to do to science. Yeah. Yes. because And not only are you destroying science and knowledge, you're destroying Western civilization or enlightened the Enlightenment, because it all goes... I think the Enlightenment civilization is a good way to put it, because I wouldn't yeah. like people to get the idea that it's exclusive to, you know, European cultures. Yes. I think I think Enlightenment ideas uh, have yes. arisen, uh, well, certainly in Indian civilization, um, yes. and at different times in other civilizations as well. But they're always in peril, and I think Popper actually taught us why that is. Oh, it's yeah. a very a very counterintuitive thing to have a, a democracy, to have a, a free contest of yes. ideas. Professor Rata has been on. You'll know her, no doubt. Oh, yes. And, and uh, she had a wonderful phrase. I'm trying to recollect it. I think it was universalist versus tribalist. Right. And the universalist idea was capturing what we loosely call um, Western civilization. And I concur with you heartily because – 
we used to understand and have a clear picture of Western civilization, something that arose with the Greeks and, and the Romans and uh, reached its uh, zenith following the Enlightenment and the Renaissance. But of course, it's a loaded term now geographically, and you think of it in racist terms, whereas mm. universalist um, versus tribalist, or in Karl Popper's terms, um, the open society versus the closed society. That's right. Um, and Hayek had another phrase too, didn't he, um, where he would distinguish the two types of um, societies, one where, you know, oh, a face-to-face -face society versus an anonymous society, you know, where you yeah. sort of grow up in the tribe and you yeah. live in the tribe and that things like Nazism is a is a tribal philosophy. Very much so, a parochial where, one. Yeah. Yes, whereas you, you, a universalist society is where you agree to rules and yeah. you live by the rules. Um, and it's anonymous, I think he used the phrase. Now, I do like Elizabeth Rata's distinction between universalist and tribalist. And, yes. and actually, it does go to the question of science and science in our curriculum. Oh, and to much. a specific, specific point about what the ministry have promulgated in this draft curriculum that they've put around to teachers. Uh, to, to give them feedback on. So one of the things that it, it stipulates is that kids should learn science in the context of their local environment. Now, of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with going and looking for the, you know, the, the little life in your local pond or, or river or, or forest. That's a, that's a good idea. But really, science is a universalist discipline. It's looking for statements that are true everywhere and always. And so, you know, if you're thinking about chemistry, then oxygen is oxygen. Anywhere in the universe, it has the same properties and, and gravity has the same properties everywhere in the universe. So in, in science, we're looking for those universal explanations of phenomena. When I read your very short critique, I'm guessing from memory, it was a bit longer than the treaty, but not much. It was maybe seven to ten paragraphs. Yep. It was devastating. All you did, I think, and I was about to try to bring it up, but I'm going to get you to walk me through it because I can't do two things at once uh, in my head, um, was actually take the key, what, objectives or points of this new science curriculum. Yep. And every one of them, could not be more abhorrent to a person steeped in the love of knowledge, universalist principles, Karl Popper, science. And I was left at the end of reading your piece, Michael, wondering if these people had no concept of what science is. Mm -hmm or whether they do and they're out to destroy it? Well, I, I couldn't answer that, but certainly in the curriculum document, there's no indication that they know what science is. And there's a, there's a fair amount of evidence that either they don't or they do and they're trying to wreck it. But, yes. um, you know, let's be charitable and assume the former. Well, we were very, we were very ad admiring in my interview of Oliver because he had a good Christian view and uh, accused his opponents of, you know, misunderstanding things. <laughs> Whereas yeah. I'm, I can 
tend deeply into the bad actor faith. But let's go through those points if you have them in front of you, because they're crucial. Each phrase, and walk us through it, what they're saying and what's wrong. Have you got them in front of you, Michael? No, but I, I can I can remember the the key points. So okay. there are kind of two broad criticisms that I have. One relating to what isn't in the curriculum, and the other relating to what is. Okay, so let's go through those. What two. isn't? We do, we see no mention of the term physics or chemistry anywhere in the whole document. How is and that possible? You simply don't write them, I guess. It's, uh, <laughs> it's simple in, in that sense. Uh, but but how, how is it possible to design a, a, a curriculum for science without mention of physics or chemistry? I mean, that's such a good question. And, and it, the the concepts of chem, chemistry and physics are entirely absent as well. There's no mention of gravity or mass or acceleration or uh, optics or any of those things that we associate with physics. There's no mention of atoms or molecules or compounds or chemical reactions that we associate with chemistry. So those, the, those sub-disciplines of science are completely missing in action in this document. So that, that that's in terms of what's missing. You know, another thing that's missing is anything about scientific methodology. Or, yes. or, and that, that is actually, you know, as, as Popper would, I think, agree, the heart and soul of science. The heart and soul. The, the things that we know about chemicals and, and physics and th these things, that's the, the products of the scientific method. Those are the theories that we've tested and in Popper's terms have failed to falsify. Uh, we don't prove them to be true. We just fail to prove them wrong. And if we fail and, to and prove them wrong, despite trying very hard, then yeah. we take them to be a provisional truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that we don't care where the idea came from or how you got it, what we care about, whether it was rigorously and critically tested That's against right. the real world to see whether it hold up, and in particular, that your test is not to show it's true, mm -hmm. but you're going out of your way, what would make me not believe this? What that's would right. make this false? And that's that that's the is, mindset of a scientist, right? That's there. the mindset when, of when a scientist. When I was an honors student at Monash University, I, I had a mentor. His name was Ken Forster, and he was a very accomplished scientist. And I was young and enthusiastic, and I had this idea that I liked very much. And, and <laughs> we've all said, done that. Michael, you're a scientist. Your job is to disprove that idea. Mm. And it was a, quite a moment for me. I, I was taken aback and I, th I thought about it because I'd learned about Popper in my undergraduate studies and thought, oh, yes, that is my, my job. And and so then, you know, one designs experiments to try to disprove one's idea. And it's so it, counterintuitive and it's so it easily is, lost because of that. And it's, and, you, and it's your psychology and ego. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you know the great Popper story about Sir John Eccles? I don't think I do. So John Eccles was a researcher at the University of Otago during uh, the war years. And I say that because I know that's when Sir Karl Popper was lecturing at Canterbury University. And Sir John Eccles was beavering away working and had the big debate at the time was how the messaging went across from one nerve cell to the next one. Mm -hmm. So when you send something to the brain or back 
from the brain to the arm or the leg, it goes down a series of nerve cells. The nerve cells don't touch each other. That's right. There's a little interval called the synapse. Correct. There's a small amount of a a neurotransmitter chemical that's emitted from one side and it... Correct. Well, the conventional wisdom wisdom was that the electrical charge jumped across the synapse. And Sir John Eccles had published on this and was working away on it being an electrical jump. Mm -hmm. And he travelled up to Canterbury University from Otago and sat, I believe, in one of Sir Karl Popper's lectures and went up to him as a young scientist, very, very concerned. <laughs> and so Karl Popper said, you know, I'm paraphrasing and mangling the story. He said, you know, well, what, do you, what do you think is wrong? You know, what, what, what's your problem? He said, look, I've been working for years on this. And he says, yes. And what's the problem? He says, I think I might be wrong. Hmm. And so Karl Popper got animated and said how exciting that was because some American researchers were suggesting that it was a chemical and uh, acetylcholinase uh, travels across and gets broken down. Oh, because you're a psychologist. You know this. (laughs) And and, um, so John Eccles, um, they designed talking a critical experiment. Yep. Right? Talking. Because you can imagine that once you understand what Karl Popper is saying. Yeah, and Sir John Eccles went off to get a Nobel Prize. Yeah, in the chemical, uh, the uh, chemical transmission of neurotransmitters across the synapse. But anyway, the great thing is, he was travelling on a train. This is Sir John Eccles, and um, he overheard these two dons talking because he went to Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere flash, and they were talking about, oh, this. John Eccles fellow, you know, what's he like? Is he, you know, sound, as you can imagine English in the 50s saying? And we said, oh, yes, no, he's he's very sound, but he's a little odd. Hmm. And the guy said, in what way is he a little odd? Well, he keeps running around trying to prove his theories wrong. Because yeah. <laughs> it is so counterintuitive, right? That's right. And it's, that's why a scientific uh, education is important for everyone, whether they're going to be a scientist or not. You know, I, I actually recently wrote a, a chapter for a book which is actually being edited by Elizabeth Rata. Uh, oh, wonderful. On the similarities between science and democracy. Yes. Because they have, they have something profoundly in common, yes. which is that you have to have this contest of ideas. Yes. And that you want to test them. In the case of science, you test them with experiments and evidence. In the case of democracy, you, you test them by having an election every Yes. Years and, and then yes. you kind of take the temperature of the electorate. And yes. what you buy with democracy is actually this incredible information processing network called people. Yes. Right? They, they discuss ideas. And if you've got an open society, as Popper put it, then the ideas can flow freely. And a lot of them will be, most of them will be wrong. Most of them will be silly. Doesn't yes. matter. Through yes. the process of open argument and debate, and yes, you'll have some nasty stuff on the side and some horrible things said, but in the end, you'll get better ideas bubbling up to the surface than you will in an authoritarian society where people aren't allowed to say what they think. And that the success for Popper of a democracy is not that you get good government, but you can eliminate bad government. Yes, once again, it's that falsificationist idea. Yeah, and that you can get rid of a government without having to shed blood. Which is... Whereas uh, any. 
Adrian, another this, great advantage. Yes. Very good. I, I tell you a very interesting thing. Gosh, we should get back to the curriculum. But um, <laughs> this, this is what this is the point, actually, of the curriculum, because it's a method. And if you don't learn the method, you can't think critically and you can't learn. That's right. And I read a what I've read. I read a lot about World War Two, and just interesting strategy and how it went the way it went, and because it was world's greatest cataclysm. And one of the interesting things is how the Allies were a superior fighting force in so many ways, because you couldn't treat a soldier as expendable. And as a sergeant or a lieutenant, you sort of had to listen to them. Right. And so good ideas would percolate up. Not perfectly, right. because yeah. at the end of the day, it's the military and all the rest of it. Or chain the, of command and so on. Yeah. But they would. Yeah. And and that the the commanders would actually listen to what the troops were saying and what was working. And of course, the technology was changing so fast. And the strategy of war was changing so fast that the uh, Soviets, who ultimately became on our side, and, and the Nazis, they couldn't respond yeah. because it was a top-down model. Well, I think, um, you know, the, uh, Mr. Putin is having some problems in that regard in Ukraine yes. now. I think, I think his military suffers from that problem. And, yes. and, and not only his military, I mean, I think that, Everybody was too scared to tell him invading Ukraine was a bad idea in the no, first place. Exactly. And 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 <laughs> you saw that with Stalin. You don't wander and you don't yeah. stay being a general if you wander into his office and say, Hey, you know that idea you had, I don't think it's a good one. Or you couldn't sit there as a military commander with Hitler and say no. Well, actually, I think I think in the, in that regard, Hitler was a slightly Easier uh, master than Stalin. Yes. <laughs> Stalin would have people shot for disagreeing with him, whereas Hitler might shout at them. But in yeah. the end, he he didn't necessarily listen to his generals, but his no. generals did dare to argue with him. Yeah, and with Churchill, they would straight up refuse. Right. Yes. Yeah. And um, he wanted to stay on in the war. Yeah. And the, and his commander said, "You can't make these men stay longer." You know, yeah. to, to deal to Russia, and um, oh, yeah. oh, another yeah. another great one was he wanted he had he wanted plans drawn up if Britain was invaded to relocate the British army to Canada, right? Yeah, and the commanders pointed out that the men wouldn't go because mm. that's what happened in France. They got the men off the beaches at um, um, Dunkirk. Dunkirk and they went home because yeah. you wouldn't leave your family to the Nazis. No, no you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is why the <laughs> curriculum on science is so important. And what you're saying is not only is it not dealing with gravity, optics, um, atomic uh, structure, any of those concepts from physics and chemistry, yeah. And it doesn't deal with what distinguishes science from all, all other sources of knowledge, which is... That's correct. It doesn't. Now, we might come on to what it does do. So yes. one, of, one of the things that they want to do is to teach all of science from the very beginning of primary school right through to year 13 through the lens of just a few topics, including things like biodiversity, climate change, 
infectious diseases. Now, the, is there, are they the ones? Uh, there's one other. Uh, there's four of them in total. Uh, oh, the other one is the food, water, energy nexus. So those are the four topics that kids are supposed to encounter again and again, year after year, as they progress through school. Now, I mean, there are multiple problems with this. First of all, it's going to get pretty boring just visiting the same topics again and again. When science gives us such a, an enormous vista of phenomena and interesting things we could be teaching them about, why do we want to keep them to these particular things year after year? So that's the first thing. The next thing is, without those basic concepts in science, the, the theory of atomic structure and mechanics and all the rest of it, you can't actually understand these topical things, right? How are you supposed to make any informed comment about, say, climate change if you don't know about how weather actually works and how uh, the physics of it unfolds and what carbon dioxide is for that matter? I mean, it's a very important thing to know that carbon dioxide is dense and that's why it causes, you know, global warming or whatever. So. You, well, without these without these fundamental concepts, you can't understand the topics. So, well, of it's course, teachers may know that, and they may introduce these these fundamental concepts on an as needs basis. But that's very different to learning them properly and systematically from the from the ground up. They are topics too that are political slash ideologically heavy in their overtone. They, they're certainly given to activism, aren't they? Yes. And, and I mean, biodiversity yeah. isn't a scientific concept. Well, not as such, you're right. No. I mean, we could talk about ecology, we could talk about different species sure. and habitats and so on, but, but biodiversity itself is is not. I would agree with that. And And so you could be sitting there learning about all of science, which has no ideological or political claim. That's what's beautiful about it. Yes. And so some of the greatest physicists in the 20th century were Marxists. A Nobel Prize winner was a Muslim yes. who held his faith central mm -hmm. to his life and understanding. Some, many are Christians. There are Hindu yes. Nobel Prize winners in physics, and of course, a lot of Jewish people. Yes. Um, and they meet, all of them meet on science. That's right. And that's what makes it so extremely wonderful. Yes. It's it's a it's a kind of microcosm of liberal society in general, isn't it? Yes. You know, in a liberal society, in a truly liberal society, a classical liberal society. Yes. Not using the small L American yes. the word, but a truly liberal society. It's it's. I think it was Francis Fukuyama who said it's the it's kind of the largest sized tent you can have in yes. terms of all of the different beliefs that can exist within it in relative yes. harmony. Uh, yes. Now. Popper did talk about the the paradox of tolerance, which that's right. Uh, which which is, in these days is when I read about that, I thought, yeah. oh yeah, we'll never need that. Well, but, I mean, what he meant was that there is a maximum size for the tent. You mm. can't afford to have widespread ideas that are themselves anti-liberal. 
or you'll lose the whole tent. Yes. And then you end up with authoritarianism again. Yes. Uh, having said that, he wasn't in favour of violent repression of those ideas. And no. And my view of the matter is that all we can do as classical liberals, as people who value that big tent that we can all live in together, mm. is talk about things and argue and put the ideas out there. And hopefully, and there's a lot of hope involved, that uh, that will be enough to save uh, the the liberal society. But, you know, history isn't very optimistic when it comes to the survival of liberal societies in the long term. There's a lovely little footnote, and I think it's an endnote, the way Popper wrote The Open Society as Enemies, where he says that the open and democratic society that we strive towards, because this was written in the dark days of World War II, yep. um, is a very recent mm-hmm. and brief thing. Yep. And that it may not survive. Yeah. But well, think about it. How, you know, how long has, have we had universal suffrage for? I mean, New Zealand gave... Everybody, the vote, including women and Māori, sometime in the late 19th century, we were the first country in the world to do that. Yes. And it's less than 150 years ago. Yes. So and it wasn't necessarily... And it wasn't that long ago that even in an enlightened society, you could own someone. Quite right. Yes. Yeah. Which is declaring people non-persons. Yeah, in property. And, uh, That's right. Uh, and wives being property. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is a phenomenally recent. And I think you and I would have grown up in our university years thinking it was so strong that it couldn't, it was unassailable. It was hard to imagine that it could be any other way, wasn't it? But, you know, we have to remember that, you know, you and I grew up in, the recent memory of World War II, of the Holocaust, yes. of fascism, Nazism. Yes. Still at the time, there was Soviet communism dominating Eastern Europe. So there were plenty of reasons to hold fast to these liberal democratic ideas. Yes. And then, you know, 1990, the Berlin Wall fell and uh, the, the communist world fell apart. Uh, well, of course, you, you've still got China and, and some other very authoritarian countries, but it looked as if, you know, again, Francis Fukuyama wrote of the end of history that, yes. that liberal democracy had won. Yes. Uh, but it was optimistic. And then, you know, I think what's happened really is that now there's a generation who have grown up since the fall of communism. Uh, and it's getting on for a century since World War II. And these yes. things pass out of living through- memory. And then, you know, the, the, the special character of liberal d- democracy starts to be forgotten. Yes, and my dad left school at 14. He was too young to go to World War II, but he knew what it was about, and he was a truck driver, and he knew exactly what free speech was and why it was important. And also that things like freedom and free speech were worth fighting and dying for. Yeah. We now have 
a generation growing up who, oh, yeah, free speech is nice, but you wouldn't want to upset anyone. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's the trouble, isn't it? And, you know, over there, there are people who are so nasty that they don't deserve free speech. Right. And that's now what you'd call, I think, Michael, an educated view. Well, as Frederick Nietzsche put it, it's human all too human to it's think all that too way. Human. It's, it's all it, too human. It's, it's, it's the natural way that people think, it, it, as Elizabeth Ryder says, you know, in this tribal way, these yes. people are like me, so I like them and I'll protect them. But those people, they think the wrong thing, so yes. they, they should be shut down. And that's yeah. antithetical to uh, antithetical to democracy and liberal society. There so, was one thing that you highlighted. I think we did cover it. But it was this idea of local knowledge. Yeah, so that's the, the idea in the curriculum is that things should be contextualised in local uh, the local environment. And, you know, yeah. as I said, a certain amount of that, especially with primary school kids, is fine. They go and explore the local forests and they find leaves and they find insects and so on. That's all good stuff. It's it's lighting up their their curiosity and their, their exploratory instincts. So for younger kids, I'm, I'm all for that. But by the time they get to secondary school, they should be learning the universal theories of chemistry, physics, biology, evolution, gravitation, mm. chemical structure, and so on. And doesn't that make the world such a wonderful, beautifying, mysterious place. Well, I think if there's one thing that science tells us, it's that the universe is far, far stranger than you would ever think. Ever imagined. Ever, I mean, ever imagined. Quantum I mean, you think mechanics. about Einstein, right, with the yeah. theory of relativity and yeah. the idea that, um, you know, the passage of time is different depending on your velocity. What yes. a counterintuitive idea that is. Yes. And yet we can measure it. You, yes. you put a highly sensitive clock on a, on a jumbo jet and fly it to London, it'll be just very slightly different when it arrives to the one that, the, yes. that you set it to when it, when it, when it departed. Yes, and that uh, light is sort of a wave but sort of a particle. And kind of neither, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I love a great phrase about that, Max Planck was at some seminar. He was a great quantum physicist. And uh, someone was presenting a new theory. And, of course, this is when all these seemingly mad ideas were floating around. Mm. And um, someone gave a paper, and someone leaned across to Max Planck, and he said, do you think that could be true? And I think he said, I might be paraphrasing him incorrectly. He said something along the lines, no, no it's not mad enough. And, <laughs> yeah. um, because, yeah. of, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty, principle, all this stuff. I think it was Feynman who said that if you if you think that you understand quantum mechanics, it means that you don't. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we got we're we're gonna we're getting carried away now. Paul, this is getting bored with us debating this, but it is it is this wonderful thing. And I, I got another thought for you, Michael, and you'll be able to help me with this with cognitive psychology. And I noticed this with my children at primary school. My children at primary school and their life seem somewhat confused and a little bit anxious 
mm. and uncertain, unsure of themselves. And I think that's because they're not being taught. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Can you speak on that a little bit? I think what you might be talking about is this educational philosophy that children have to construct all knowledge for themselves. Yes. And that teachers, you know, as the, the education gurus put it, should be guides on the side rather than sages on the stage, uh, which is a, a way of kind of denigrating the role of the teacher. Mm. Because actually, we need to remember that teachers are teachers for a reason. They they hold knowledge that the children don't. And yes. actually, a lot of the time, the best way to impart that knowledge is just to tell it to them rather than have them discover everything for themselves. Look, there's a place for discovery learning. You know, what is a laboratory class in science? But that, yes. but it's within a context, isn't it? It's within the context of a discipline. And there's a whole lot of knowledge that has to be front-loaded before they're well, able to I've benefit taken- from that. As a parent helper, I've sat in on some classrooms at primary school and I've thought that it's just a jumble of information Yeah, that they get taught on a project. You know, we're doing this project, we're off to the museum and look at this and look at that and look at this. And it's a jumble and yeah. it's not a stepping stone to deeper knowledge. Yeah, and um, you and I would be the last to suggest that we should crush out creativity and innovation and the child's ideas, of course. But you actually have to learn the discipline, and you have to learn the alphabet. You have to learn numbers and the times table. Um, well, I'll go basic- further and say that creativity depends on it. Yes. If you don't have knowledge, you have nothing to think critically about. Yes. If you don't have knowledge. You don't know how to be creative. A total lack of constraint is not good for creativity. No. If you want to play a musical instrument, there's a lot of hard yards and learning, you know, the fingering and the notes and all of that. And only when you've mastered that are you able to be truly creative with with that instrument. So the disciplines are actually what frees us to be creative in the long run. Isn't that a strange, that's another uh, contradiction that is true. Yeah, seems... well, you need the structure to, to be creative from. Yes. And also, um, you need a certain, you need a structure in order to be tolerant. Uh, yes. Right. Well, t- tolerance doesn't come easily to people. No. And, and this, again, is a very interesting feature, isn't it, that um, we've witnessed and we've learned that we're now living in an era which presents itself as everyone can go off and live their own true self and be their best them and live uh, free to choose. Mm. And yet, because of that, it's, it's, it's the most fascist place you've ever lived in. I fear that you may be right, and it's, it's kind of hard for me to accept that as a, as a classical liberal. Yes, uh, I guess, because I like the idea that people are free to choose. I, I do. I think it's me too. It's much better than um, authoritarianism. I, I would much prefer that people are able to live the life they want. But I do think as well that we probably should do a much better job of disciplining young people so that they make good choices, so that they make ethical choices, so mm. that they make choices that take account of other people's freedom. Uh, as well. So, well, haven't we taught them 
we're just sort of, I think the Americans say spitballing, isn't it? We're just shooting the breeze, would be a Kiwi saying. I wonder if it's that you actually need a value system to engage with people. Mm. And you and I, understand that people adults can live the life as they choose and we do that at some cost to ourselves because they can be extremely annoying their lifestyle choices can annoy us yes right but we we shrug and we put up with it because we understand that's what living in a free society is yeah but what we have we get that the downside to it. But what we have is a group now growing up who say, this is how you should live. They don't have an ability to argue that mm-hmm. because they haven't been taught any structure. Mm-hmm. So they've got no philosophical or logical basis to arguing a position. And then they'll say, you have to live this way too. Yes. So that, that's where it becomes authoritarian, right? Yes. And so you're living in this free and easy world where you're forced to live that free and easy world. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's, I think you're right. And I think that the structure that we're failing to inculcate is actually the structure of liberality, which is that you you are free to choose until the point where it can no longer be reciprocal. Mm. So if I make a choice to constrain your freedom, Mm -hmm. then that's beyond the, it's beyond that, that horizon of, of Popper's paradox of tolerance, if you will, because yes. now I've impinged on yes. uh, a freedom that I afford myself. Mm. I, I, I had a funny one when free speech became a debatable point in New Zealand. I couldn't remember the arguments in favour of free speech. Yeah. You know, because... It was not something I'd ever had to argue in my life for. I had exactly the same phenomenon. I oh, remember, how interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was what did you do? I went and read On Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read that. I read a lot of things. I mean, the, the, the wake-up call for me was when Don Brash was banned from Massey Campus. Yes, me too. Uh, that, it was a moment of extreme outrage for me. And when I calmed down, I wrote a piece for some media outlet at that time, which, which got published. Uh, and after that, I just started to think about uh, free speech from first principles because, yes. like you, I never had. I'd grown up in no. this society where it was a, a given. Yeah. So it, it is actually good for us to have to replenish our thinking about these things. So that, our human capital. Yeah. 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 Well, Michael, um, we're going to have a lot to talk about. We've we've already talked about quite a lot today. Yes, and we've hardly got to the ins and outs of the curriculum. Yeah. And I feel as though you may be a very good person, given that your field is psychology, you probably got a understanding of postmodernism. A rudimentary one. I, I've never studied postmodernism as a scholar. I, I came up through a science background. I, yes. I studied mathematics and biology alongside psychology. I did a little bit of humanities, but I, I never encountered postmodernism as a university student. No, um, neither. And I, but, I I stayed firmly away from it because it sounded like gobbledygook to me, you know. Yeah. And Popper had taught me 
to write clearly. Yes. And um, the Marxists and postmodernisms write obscurely. Certainly the postmodernists do. I, I, I couldn't speak about the Marxists, but, Trust uh, me. you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they write obscurely. And it's sort of dressed up and academic, and it's very appealing if you're a young person. So I never got into it because I thought if they can't explain it, that I can't read it and and grasp Mm. it. And I realized that I was trying to understand why people can think what they think. Why would the Ministry of Education be suggesting this is how you teach science, right? And actually, it was through this radio station, I got introduced to this whole concept of wokery or postmodernism. And I read a book called Cynical Theories. Oh, yes. Puckrose, Lindsay, and Bogosian. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's those two, Puckrose yeah. and Lindsay. And I have to say, I struggled through the book because it was using the language of sociology and the language of wokeism. And it was hard, hard work. I actually read it twice. But I began to glimmer at it um, because it's it's saying that there's no objective world. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding of it, and and I'm not an expert, so I should uh, issue that disclaimer. Is is that Derrida, the, the French yes. philosopher, was the, possibly the first to make whole sort of full throatedly postmodernist claims, and his idea was that language is. Uh, how we construct reality. Yes. And, but where he went wrong, to my, in my view, is that he, he seemed to think that it was ungrounded, that there was yes. no kind of basis to, to language yes. and reality. And that, of course, is just wrong. Uh, yes. I mean, language has evolved as a pretty a much organ in, in human beings. It's, it's more than a tool. It's not an invention. It's something that's built into us biologically, yes. the propensity to learn a language. Uh, and it, And that's because it's an extremely useful thing in the world and it was an adaptive thing for us to do and it it refers to the world it refers to objects in the world actions in the world and so on and yes there's an abstract end to it where we can talk you know highfalutin philosophy but and that's a wonderful thing but really you know at bottom language is a grounded thing and and it does bear a relationship to reality or it wouldn't be any use to us and and how wonderful is it that the person that really gave us that idea that grammar there is a there is a DNA code for grammar mm. was Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky, the linguist, yes, yeah, and who's a dirty old com, but when it comes to science, he was par excellence. He likes free speech as well, so yeah, I, I, I'm quite willing to listen to his his um, yeah his other and, ideas. And that's the point, isn't it? Because yeah. it was a testable theory and then they discovered families that were lacking that there was a mix-up in their genes mm-hmm. and they couldn't talk or learn grammar yeah and they now i think it's a fox pro gene or something but but the point of it is when i read that curriculum it screams postmodernism to me now yes or at least you know it's cousin post-structuralism the, the idea okay. that there's no structure to disciplines that they're arbitrary that uh, and you know there's this other idea that science and structured disciplines are a tool of power that they use yes. to oppress and I mean it's nonsense but it's it's a very popular idea in in those kinds of political circles well 
I'll have to disagree with you there too, because I saw it as a popular idea, but now I see it as driving everything. It certainly broken out of the academy, broken yes. out of the universities and, and metastasized yes. into mainstream society. Uh, I would say most of the, the public institutions are possessed by this ideology. Uh, yes, certainly that's the how education is. Uh, yes. If I sat down with my children's primary school teacher and suggested that there was object of knowledge, they would, they'd be very polite because they're lovely people, mm -hmm. right? But Inside and probably in the staff room, they'd have a wee titter and a laugh about this old man who wanders in from the 20th century, mm. thinking that there could ever be such a thing as objective knowledge. Interesting, isn't it? And yet they drive to work in a car that works That's right. because of the laws of physics That's right. and, and so That's on. That's right. That's right. Um, and um, but that's what I mean by it's sort of driving, and of course, the other clever thing is by their nature, and I'd be interested in you. Maybe we'll, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to have you back, Michael, because I've burbled on. Be a great I, pleasure. Because isn't this this interesting thing? And you would have counted this. How do you debate and discuss the curriculum with these people who don't believe in debate and discussion and objective reality? I'm not sure that they'll take much notice of what I have to say about it. I, I, my hope is that teachers, and there are many science teachers out there who are uh, extremely upset by this document, will rebel over it. I want to publicise it to parents so they know what's going on. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of parents would like their children to have a proper education, including a, a proper education in science. And what I'm worried about actually is that if a document like this actually becomes the curriculum and we should be clear it isn't draft at the moment this this copy that I got was sent to me by a teacher who had received it from the ministry for feedback it wasn't supposed to go any more widely but you know you could call it a leak if you like it, it leaked it to me and and I wrote Whistle about if you like, yeah, whatever. But you know I, I decided that it was absolutely worth publicizing so that parents, and teachers all knew what's coming down the line so that we can stop it in its tracks. I don't think the ministry will do that of their own accord, but, no. you know, we've got an election coming up and, and you you know, we really want people to think about the education system when they vote and have ask questions of prospective MPs about this, what, what they'll support and what they won't support in education. Mm. That's I our was... mechanism for change. I was briefly an associate of Minister of Education, briefly, and I had a um, person seconded to my office, and she was great. She was fantastic. And she said, oh, I'm just going to pop off over to the Kremlin. <laughs> Meaning the Ministry of Education. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, that's hilarious. She's not a joke. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I came to realize that it was run like the Kremlin. Yeah. Um, and Kremlin-like approach and ideas. But, Michael, we're talking to Dr. Michael Johnston. We're going to have to call it quits because I've burbled on too much. But we're getting to know uh, Michael. And he has 
a wonderful insight and a wonderful experience of schooling. Just like Professor Elizabeth Rata, who's been also an absolute delight on this program. We will definitely get Michael back because there's so much to discuss. And truthfully, I don't know anything that is going to determine our future more than what we're teaching our kids at school and at university. And if you look at what we're teaching our kids at school and at university now and proposed with this leak, it doesn't look good, Michael, does it? It's not looking good, too good at the moment. So again, you know, hold your, hold your politicians to account. Yes. And, and we can find out more from Michael, and you can find out what he's writing. It's, he's, a, he's a terrific writer, so you can read it and understand it. He, he, he is Popperian in his clarity and precision with the way he writes. And you can find that along with other good uh, insightful analysis at the New Zealand Initiative's webpage. So just Google New Zealand Initiative. They're not banned. They still appear at the top of your Google search. And there's good stuff here. Uh, Michael's keeping it coming. He's got uh, more stuff coming out, as he explained, along with Prof Rata. Dr. Johnson, it's been a wonderful blessing to have you share uh, your time with us and your knowledge. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rodney. Mm. I would love to do it again. Well, that's a date, and we'll talk more popper. That was Dr. Michael Johnson uh, from the New Zealand Initiative. What a wonderful job they're doing. This is a, a think tank of, I don't know, probably half a dozen, eight or nine staff across all these fields of government with bureaucracies numbering in the thousands of people and on a shoestring budget uh, with businesses that are prepared to support policy for the good of the country because they feel that having a good and prosperous informed country is good for business and that's absolutely true not a particular business but good for society and good for a prosperous society and good for business so we're very lucky to have the New Zealand initiative you're on uh, real talk with Rodney Hyde this is Readily Check Radio. Oh, please send us an email, inbox at readilycheck.radio. You can text us at 2057. Um, send us anything. I love the feedback. And also, I'm sure you can go on the New Zealand Initiative and you can interact with uh, Michael directly or send stuff through to him. But I will always forward anything on that you send me. Uh, thank you for listening. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And here's our regular section. It's Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with my very good friend, Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. So today we've got uh, a question actually an email sent in by one of our listeners. So I'm going to read out the question and then we're going to have a little bit of a discussion. It's, it's a very interesting question. So it goes, I'm a long-time listener, first-time commenter. Your politics discussion with Tane Webster is a great addition to your show. I have some questions, ideas regarding our politics and particularly the political party structures that maybe you can help with and could be of interest to other listeners, maybe for the next Politics with Tane session. So the first question, he sent in six. 
uh, this is Simon, and we may only go into the first one in this in this session because it's quite a in-depth question. So the first question is, do you know how many party members each of the main New Zealand political parties have? How does this compare to say 30 years ago? I've tried to find this information online, but unable to. When I hear that VFF have over 100,000 people on an email list, it makes me think that there could be more VFF aligned people in New Zealand than the combined number of political party members. If VFF members mobilized and joined the main political parties in large numbers, could it be feasible that some of the main political parties could be influenced from within by freedom lovers, e.g. what would happen if 10,000 VFF folk decided to join, say, the National Party and got involved with their meetings and campaigns, etc., but with an attitude to question anything taking our country in a direction away from our cherished freedoms? With large numbers, could that shift the conversation and direction within a party? The creation of many small parties over recent times is detrimental to our aims. All this will achieve is a splitting of the vote and will probably result in more power going to the large parties. As most of these small parties are centre-centre-right, the main beneficiary will be the Labour Party, exactly what we do not want. So what do you think, Rodney? I can repeat parts of that if you need. No, it's a fabulous, fabulous question, and I think Simon's absolutely right. You could almost easily take over a political party. They would have the fright of their lives. So, no, uh, we don't know how many uh, members that political parties have. I know at times with ACT, we were in our dark days uh, treading on the edge of being deregistered because you have to show 500 members. So at times we got down below 1,000 and then it would sort of, we'd build it up again. But every year, you know, they've got to write a check and if they're grumpy with you, the check doesn't come. I know that Peter Dunn's party went below the 500 and he had to work like crazy to get it up so he could be properly registered and show that he had those that membership. Uh, I would say that the Labour and Nationals membership is in the few thousands. I'd be shocked if they were over 10, which is amazing. Simon asked about what it was some years ago. It was in the hundreds of thousands. Right. The yeah. Labour was helped with the uh, union movement and National was helped because it was a social thing. It was like joining Rotary and they'd have dances on, they'd have functions on and you belong to the National Party. Literally like you would belong to Rotary or the Bridge Club or the Tennis Club. It was a very much a social function you would have your local MP come to talk to you. Um, you would have ministers come through, and it was a big deal. And when they had their national conferences, the conferences would send delegates, right, because you'd be a delegate from Clutha Southland, say, or Auckland, and you'd be chosen to represent your area. Nowadays, when the National Party and the Labour Party have a conference, I suspect they still call them delegates, but it's sort of making it up a bit. I know in the act I'd call them delegates, but we were making that up. It was anyone that would come to sort of make it good for TV. And I suspect it's the same for National. Because 
it's happened everywhere. We don't join clubs and organisations like we did. You know, Boy Scouts, um, Rotary, uh, they're not the things that they were because we sort of meet online, I guess. Also, we've got an interested in politics. But even then, in the old days, those functions were less about politics and more about a social get-together uh, yeah. around uh, uh, politics. Now, the other fascinating thing about political parties, until we had MMP, the political parties didn't exist in our electoral law, which is hard to believe. They weren't part of our constitution. So our constitution only recognised MPs. So the political parties were something outside of the legal process of getting elected, but they were a piece of machinery and organisation that would endorse and select and support a candidate who would then get elected. Now, this jumps on a bit because I know Simon asked about, you know, Pledge of Allegiance and all the rest of it. Once you're an MP in the old days, that was it. You owed nothing to your party. Nothing. The party couldn't control you. What it could do is not select you at the next election, but it couldn't make you do a thing. So uh, under MMP, because we have this party vote, we recognise parties in our parliament, and because of this great mad love of proportionality, we have the Waka Jumping Bill, which says, you know, you, if you don't vote with your party or you lose your party, you lose your place. I hate that because I actually want more independent MPs, not more beholden MPs. So in the old days, it really was quite grassroots in terms of numbers. How does policy get formed? Pretty much gets formed from the top. There's a process because MPs need to be selected in their electorate, so they've got to keep the electorate happy and all that in the old days. Nowadays, it's all top-down. And that's leading to even less people involved in politics because an ordinary member of a political party has no say. So you can write letters, you can jump up and down, you have no more say than you or I do, Tane, about what happens in Labour or what happens in National by joining the party. You can let off steam, that's it. The bosses are going to do what the bosses do. So, yeah, yeah. Can you, can you take them over? You bet you could. I, mean, I, th I think if you're sitting there as a National Party president and you suddenly saw 10,000 people <laughs> applying to become members, you would put a halt on accepting members because you would detect what's going on. 10,000 members, you take over any political party and start running it. Why? Because with 10,000 members who are active and got a simple focus, the party uh, parties are required to be democratic. 
It's a requirement in the electoral law. They're, they're required to select their list, for example, democratically. They're required to select their boards and chairpersons democratically. So 10,000 people sneaking into the National Party or the Labour Party could choose the board and the list. Imagine it. Wouldn't happen overnight, but it happened by the next election. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a great question that Simon put in, and we actually discussed this topic, uh, among many other things, at our recent VFF conference, which you were at. And uh, I just it, it reminds me of a quote, I think it's Mark Twain, it's like, when you're on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Yes. And I feel like within the quote-unquote broader freedom movement, the majority are hyper-focused, tunnel vision on a minor party breaking the 5% threshold. And then there's this whole, there's many other things. Like in the conference we went through, there was about seven or eight things I presented on. There's many ways you can interact with politics and everyone's focused on just this one way. And I think this is a classic example of that quote where it, there's actually more effective ways to make change. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be all at once. Yes. That's probably a good thing. But I think I you would... Donna Awateri Huata, who was a Maori MP and a good friend of mine, I had a lot of time for Donna, even though she could be naughty at times, uh, and I say that in a criminal way, um, which was pretty awful. But she was a highly intelligent uh, woman, and it was a Maori strategy to get Maori MPs who'd promote the Maori cause into every political party heading into MMP. And how successful has that been? Unbelievably successful. And in fact, if you look around at success in politics, uh, particularly revolutionary acts, it's an amazing small group of people that affect the change because most people are just getting on with their lives. So, you know, what was it? Lenin took over Russia with 2,000 people. It's extraordinary. So with 10,000, if you can take over Russia with 2,000, you should be able to knock off the National Party with 10,000. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's a great question by Simon. And, and I, we, yeah, we'll have to go through his other ones on a future recording. But, um, yeah, do you have any further but thoughts? But, of course, one person can't do it. Ten people can't do it. But 1,000, boy, oh, boy. And... Why wouldn't it be that way? You know, um, it has to ultimately be uh, political and the members have to matter. And imagine this. You have a president saying, oh, well, you can't put that motion. You can't propose that. You can't say that. And you say, well, okay. And when are you coming up for re-election? You say to an MP, oh, well, you're not happy with me and these 500 people joining joining your electorate as members, well, when, he, when is your name forward, going forward for the list? Because once mm. you're a member and you've got a group and a block, that's significant, really, really significant. And I think, I think it's worth pointing out, I just loaded it up on the page, um, the National Party website there, uh, national.org.nz forward slash values and their purported values are, you know, 
some of them are I share, right? Oh, and, absolutely. We just want and them the thing to is, do them. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the, the party of today is not the, the National Party of no. Sydney Holland, great, great no. people like him. But, but that doesn't mean the party is completely worthless and should be thrown out. Uh, I mean, I'm just, I'll just read a few out. There's limited government, strong families, personal responsibility, individual freedom and choice, national and personal security, equal citizenship, loyalty to our country. That's a pretty big one, right? So there's not one of them I disagree with. And the 10,000 could march into the National Party, I'd suggest surreptitiously, you know, staggered, and then just say, all we want to do is hold you to your values that are written here in your constitution. Likewise with ACT. All we want to do is that. We're not trying to push you in a way you don't want to go. We just want to hold you to the way that you say you want to go. We're here to help. We're here to support you. I should point out that in 1993, Roger Douglas wrote a book called Unfinished Business, and he outlined how to reform health, education, welfare, and our tax system. And at the end of it, he suggested this is how you could implement this. And one of his options was to take over either National or Labor. And uh, he was quite serious about that. He didn't think that would be hard to do. Now, he's he, he's had more experience in politics. His father and his grandfather were Labour MPs and MPs of some note. Um, extraordinary MPs. His grandfather was Bill Anderton. He was a founding member of the New Zealand Labour Party. No relation to Jim Anderton. And... Um, his father uh, was an MP, but more particularly a, an active member in the Labour Party for many, many years. However, he fell out of favour because he left the Labour Party with John A. Lee when John A. Lee walked out over a row with Mickey Savage. So Roger Douglas is steeped in Labour Party politics and history from its very foundation. And he felt that you could, it would be a very good option to take over a political party. At the time that we were discussing that, MMP came along, and so we thought it might be easier to start a party and get 5%. I think it would have been easier to take over Labour or National. Yeah. Very interesting little segment. And well, I'm sure Simon, Simon... <laughs> Simon, you've started up a thought process. You might have started up trouble. And we've even got more questions. So, Tane, thank you for that. Thank, thank you particularly for, to Simon. And we'll be back next week with some more Politics Explained. Back to the basics. Thank you, Tane. Thanks, Rodney. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And right now we've got one of our favourite, well, one of our favourite uh, commentator going by listener feedback, and that's our gardening guru, Wally Richards. Good morning, Wally. Ah, good morning. And how's everything down in your bitter cold south? Well, it's cold, and I have been up in the snow and ice taking the kids skiing. I can't ski, but I take the little kids up. And uh, it's a bit short of snow, but oh man, it snowed yesterday up there. And I had such a lot of fun just watching it and driving up and driving down with the chains on and watching people have 
total fun. I can't <laughs> ski, but boy, people that ski have such a lot of fun. Right. Uh, I think it's a tremendous sport. They're not easy to do by the look of it. Um, I'm not game to even try now. No. Um, I'm sure I'd hurt my leg, but it's it's been great. But before the ski season started, I had this old bit of ground and I dug my manure in and I've got it all ready and some of it trenched up ready for my potatoes. So right. that's my next thing is going to be, I've got my potatoes uh, uh, growing their sprouts, hopefully. I got them from right. the supermarket, so hopefully they'll grow their sprouts. That's what I've been doing on my garden. But I have something to report, Wally. Yeah. I thought your product, Magic BL, what is it, Magic Botanical Liquid? liquid. I thought, well, it'll probably make a difference. But I didn't know about that. There's old Wally, you know, talking it up, Magic and all the rest of it. And I put an order in, and you're a bit naughty because you haven't yet charged me for that. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I am blown away really? by magical botanical liquid. I had these tussocks that I'd transplanted and they were looking very droopy. And I got my little girl to go over and spray with a wee hand sprayer and she sprayed these tussocks. I kid you not, within two days, they are sitting up like it's spring. Right, great. Now, on my little lettuces that I got going, I got a, I built a wee mini glass house, and I got lettuces growing in there, and I got some little lettuces growing in my tunnel house, and so I thought I'd be scientific, and I put the MBL on half of them, and I haven't yet detected a difference, but I put some on some old beech trees that I'd planted, like I planted in uh, tubs, 450 beech trees, mountain beech trees, and four of them were looking a bit sad. And I thought, oh, well, nothing to nothing to lose. I'll spray those four that are looking a bit sad with MBL. Man, did they pick up. Ooh. I actually thought they were dead. Okay. They had a bit of green round under the rabbit cover, and I sprayed that magic botanic liquid down there. It is magic. It is, yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a funny story with it. Originally, when we first um, decided we'd um, promote it and retail it and sell it and so forth, we called it uh, magic black liquid. Okay. Now, yeah. That's, it was black, it's a liquid, yeah. and it's yeah. magic, right? Yeah. Well, the letters I got from Australia um, lawyers saying, you can't do that. Yates have got magic, black black magic, uh, what's name, um, oh. as a trade name. Oh. And so um, I, I was severely slapped over the wrist and said. And was it the same, same thing? No, 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 no. Something then black different. magic, of course. Uh, originally was their seed raising mix, mm. right? 
which was a peat moss-based mix. It was okay. It was good. Um, but they had the trade name uh, Black Magic, right? Mm. And unbeknownst to me, they were in the process of bringing out a Black Magic liquid, mm. right? And, of course, me taking that name um, upset the apple cart, no end. So I said, right, okay, I'll change it. I'll make it a Magic Botanic liquid. And that was okay. Oh, that's okay because yeah. Now tell me, what does I? I I'm not kidding, Wally. Um, you're very kind to send me that bottle, and even if I paid for it, it's not that expensive. Uh, and you only you. I'm only spraying on. I'm surprised how far a liter goes to spraying it on the leaves of plants. Right. And you only use what is it to spray on the plants? Ten mil. Ten mils per liter. Yep. And I just I did all the house plants, and I went out there and did a bit. And every now and then I give them a spray. So um, I haven't got around my whole garden yet, but I thought it was amazing. How mm. does it do that? What is it? It's humate and fulvic acid. It comes um, from coal, right? Soft coal or yep. something. Yep. Um, actually. The manufacturer did tell me the source. I think it's the South Island source of coal that they use. I don't know exactly how they extract it, yeah. but um, it's extracted out. And, of course, really you're talking about coal, which derived from prehistoric forests of cycads yeah. and plants and stuff. When the world was mineral rich, it was literally mineral rich because – plants and so forth, not only that, we had lots of CO2, which you're not allowed to have these <laughs> days. <laughs> there was volcanoes spewing out CO2 all over the place. Yeah, it was about 5,000 per parts per million, yeah. And plants love CO2. They in love fact, it. Um, in a nursery situation where you've got a glass house and so forth, um, quite a few growers actually have CO2 machines mm. generating CO2, pumping it into the uh, air of the glass house, which is making the plants grow, right? Well, the lack of CO2 is starving all the plants. It is, and this is a worry because, mm. like, if you take the dimming effect where the sun doesn't get through the um, the haze that's mm -hmm. generated by clouds or whatever, um, then your plants, like in winter at the moment, short daylight hours, they don't grow much because they're not getting enough direct sunlight. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of summer, we found this year, same problem, too many cloudy skies, not enough nice blue skies. And, and the interesting thing, I wrote an article some time ago on, on this aspect, and on a cloudy day or a hazy day, it's actually hotter than it is on a blue sky day. Now, the reason being is that the UV is concentrated by zip zapping through all the particles in the sky, yes. whether it be rain drops or whatever, which then intensifies the UV and it mm. actually heats the planet up. Mm. So if you talk about this rubbish of CO2 global warming, well, it's we need the CO2, otherwise we don't have plants. If we don't have plants, we don't eat. And also plants are a large contributing factor to our oxygen because mm. they take the CO2 in yes. and push out oxygen, right? 
so you don't breathe either. <laughs> Disaster. I had a dear scientist friend who was very up on all of this stuff, and I said, what do you think about this climate change stuff? This is 30 years ago. And he said, well, my big fear is that it's not true. I said, yeah. how can you be scared it's not true? He said, well, I'd love there to be a lot more CO2 in the atmosphere. It'd be good for the plants. And I'd love the world to be two degrees warmer because the world would be richer, more prosperous, and would produce more. But he said, sadly, I don't think it's happening. <laughs> but we're supposed to be beside ourselves um, about this. But that's another story. That that. They love scaring us, Wally. And the great thing about being a gardener like you and me, can I call myself a gardener yet? Oh, of course, yes. You, if you you don't have to wait till your fingers turn green. No, and you no, don't have to important. wait till you get a, a letters after your name or a white coat. You and us gardeners, right. we learn to trust nature, don't we? Yes. And we also know we don't know as much as we think we do. And you see a beautiful plant grow from a seed and you see that rich soil that you can make and you see the worms and you know of the bugs, it is a a wonder to behold. And you you look at these experts trying to scare our pants off and you think, no, because funnily enough, you you scare my pants off and then you say, we need to follow your directions. No, not happening. Now, Wally, so that magic, so what is a magic botanic liquid? So I'm a convert. I um what does it do, do we know, to the plant? And also, how did you first learn of it? How did I first what, sorry? How did you first learn of it? Oh, um the manufacturers uh of the product in New Plymouth, they contacted me. Um, I don't know how it came about, by accident or something, but anyway, they got hold of me and uh, told me about this product, and I said, yeah, okay, um, give us some, I'll try it out, see what I think, and which, like yourself, tried it out, found it was very, very good, and so I said, right, we will market it, and um, away it went from there. Um the number of things it can do is actually on my Garden News website uh, under additional information on plants. And if you scroll down that, Magic Botanic Liquid, and there's a whole lot of things it does. Um, it helps reduce common plant disease problems, uh, increases availability of chemical fertilisers and organic foods for plants, helps to release locked-up fertilisers from past applications, particularly uh, phosphates. Now, here's an interesting thing. When people um, use it either as a drench or a spray and it gets into the soil, in fact, I recommend to use as a drench initially because Quite often people have been putting food into the soil, but because of certain factors, they get locked up. Mm -hmm. And when they water some into the soil, it releases that, and then they ring me up a couple of weeks later and said, the garden's gone mad. It's like triffids because (laughs) suddenly the plants have got the food that's been sitting there they couldn't get. Um, 
It also uh, cleans up toxic compounds, chemicals and oil spills in the soil, um, helps establish plants in areas where they can't or struggle to establish, as you found out. Um, quite often you plant a plant and it just sits there and mopes and doesn't do much. You apply some magic botanic liquid to it and it's kind of giving it a kick in the bum and away it goes. Stimulates growth of soil microorganisms, which is very important. Increases root uh, respiration and formation. Increases availability of micronutrients. Can increase permeability of plant membranes, which will enhance nutrient uptake. Increases vitamin content of plants. Improves seed germination. Accelerates root development. Stimulates plant enzymes. And so it goes on. It's a whole well, it is lot amazing. And next time I buy a lot, you're going to have to build me and I'm going to buy a big container because you just spray it. You can't overspray it almost, could you? No. I, well, you can waste it. Waste it, yeah. Um, my suggestion is if you're keen, you make it up in a sprayer, like a trigger sprayer, and you spray the foliage of plants, it keeps you don't have to discard it or use it all up. You can just put it down. Um, if you spray once a week, that's really Windy. good. What's that? Well, my beech trees are going to get it um, because those ones that were looking a bit sour, uh, they perked up. And uh, do you only sell stuff that you have used and figured out is good? By and large, but not necessarily so. Okay. Like, for instance, um, you've got specific products for different things, right? Um, and a number of the products that we actually have are really commercial products. They're not available to the home gardener. Yes. But the importers or the manufacturers in New Zealand have contacted me because of my uh, connections in the garden world and retailers such as Mitre Tens, um, Odrin's Garden Centre and Independence, um, King's Plant Barn. Um, and so it gets the products out into the market. Now, it's very difficult uh, in the garden game of owning garden centres to get a garden centre owner to take a product on. Right. Okay. I, I know I was a garden centre owner myself, and Mr. Yates or somebody comes along and says, Oh, we've got this brilliant product here, you know. And I look at it and I say, Oh, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. And put it on the shelf. And two or three years later, I'm, I'm trying to get rid of it at a, at a fraction of the price to get some money back. It just mm. doesn't sell. Right. Mm. Main problem is that people don't know about it and don't know the benefits of it, even if it was a good product. Right. Mm -hmm. So garden centre owners are reluctant to take on board. Once a few years ago, I was publishing most papers in New Zealand on a weekly basis. Right. When I wrote about a product back then, and it was something of interest to the gardeners, they would look at that and say, oh, magic botanic liquid. I, I must go and get some of that. So yes. they race down to the garden centre, might attend or whatever, and say, I want some magic botanic liquid. The people look at them like, what are you talking about? And they don't know, right? And so that 
they would go away and they'd contact me and get it directly. Eventually, after, say, about 20 people have come into your shop asking for a product and you haven't got it, you start to get concerned. Yes. Where's that coming from? <laughs> yeah. So you think, I better find out where this comes from. So they make an effort, they find out, and they decide to stock it, right? But the problem, of course, can arise then that the people have gone elsewhere and got it. Yeah. And when and the guy's got it sitting on the shelf forever. Yeah, they don't want it now. Yeah. It, 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 until it's well known, like neem oil or whatever. Mm. Um, I, I had a situation some years ago where I introduced an old product called lime sulfur. Now, lime sulfur is used on deciduous plants such as fruit trees, roses, in the wintertime when they're more or less bare of foliage and they're resting. And the idea of lime sulfur, it burns and it cleans up disease and insect pests that are on the plants harbouring over, right? It's an old thing. Smells like uh, Rotorua. Yeah. And Sorry, everyone in Rotorua, but yeah, I yeah. know what you mean. Right. And so I wrote about this, and I had this garden centre from down your way ring me up, cursing me. <laughs> and I said, why? What's the problem? He said, I've had this lime sulphur from years ago, sitting on my shelf, I wouldn't sell, right? Suddenly, people read your bloody article. They come in, they bought all my lime sulfur, and there's more people coming in asking for it. I've had to buy more in. <laughs> well, you're like the My Michael Jordan of uh, sneakers, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. like Michael Jordan says, wear these Nikes, and you'll be like me. And Wally... Richard says, you know, use this on your garden. And and away it goes off the shelf. Well, I've got to tell you, I'm a I'm a convert to magic botanic liquids. I tend, I'm tending to be very careful because I go into just my little local bunnings, and there's so much stuff for this plant and that plant. And I worked out if you started to go down buying it for your garden you'd be better off just to buy your veggies at the supermarket from a price point of view. And then I think to myself, I'm going to be a bit more discriminating because if I'm doing it right and getting good manure and keeping the soil healthy, then that should be my first port of call rather than rushing off and getting everything in, in these bags and willy-nilly throwing them around. So I've been... I've been cautious um, on what I've thrown on now because I've done a bit of that and um, I used that stuff to bash up the clay. Right, uh, gypsum. Gypsum. And then I did use, my wife had me before I spoke to you putting some all-round fertiliser on, NPK stuff, that would be slow release. Right. But I've stopped, I've stopped doing that now because I've got my horse manure. Right. And I've got my – the only thing that I'm really doing apart from horse manure at the moment is magic botanic liquid. Right. Good. So um, I'm going to I'm going to go minimal and see how I go. Does that make sense? It does. Um, one thing that I would suggest uh, with it, using horse manure in your veggie garden, growing brassicas and – all the veggies except for potatoes and tomatoes is some garden lime. 
because you've got to get the pH of the soil Okay. Right. Sorry. So when you say except for potatoes and tomatoes, and tomato, right. I don't put the lime on or I don't put the horse manure on? No, 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 the lime. The lime. Um, okay, okay. Oh, fuel. If, if you lucky. give p- potatoes lime and make the soil alkaline, then you'll get potato scab, right? Okay. And you won't have a good crop. Wow, because th- they like to be a little bit on the um, acid side, mm. not a lot. And our soil in New Zealand is naturally a bit on the acid side. Mm. If you're going to give them calcium, which is the main part of um, your uh, garden line, you would give potatoes your gypsum because yeah. that's calcium and sulphur, yeah. and that's ideal for them, and it gives them the calcium they want. And then with your tomatoes, you would give them dolomite, which is calcium and magnesium. Both of those are pH neutral, so they don't change the um, pH of the soil, making it either acidic or alkaline. Let me get this right there, Wally. Gypsum for the potatoes? Gypsum for the potatoes. And for the tomatoes? Uh, Dolomite. Dolomite. Oh, man. I am if I get any vegetables off my crop because I plant, you know, I will be it'll be a plus because I have so loved it. Do you know what I've particularly loved? I've particularly loved seeing that manure develop. So I got a tons of horse manure and um I mixed it up with a lot of barley straw and straw. And I can't believe how hot it got and how quickly it broke down, mm-hmm. and now I shovel it up, and it's just the richest, beautiful, beautifulest soil. And I had, I started at the same time a little worm farm at home, sort of the kids wanted a pet, and I said, you can have worms. Didn't really work. They still want a dog. But we had <laughs> thousands of worms. And every now and then I I divide them in half and put them in my compost. That compost right. is alive. It yeah, is it would totally be. alive. And I mix it into the soil. And when I come along and just have a look at it, it is so beautiful. Mm. The soil is beautiful. It's rich and there's worms in there. And I feel good just about that. Right. You know what I mean? And because you've got worms in there. Now, see, worms like an alkaline um, conditions. They, okay. they don't like it acidic. They'll go away. So in your case, you don't need to worry about garden lime. Okay. Because the worms are telling you that it's okay. Now, here's a nice little trick to find out if you need some garden lime in your veggie garden or not, right? Now, you could buy one of those little cheap pH meters, which is a waste of time. They don't work of any consequence. They don't give you an accurate reading. In mm-hmm. fact, it's very difficult um, to get an accurate reading of pH. You need a very inspe- inspe- expensive, 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 get it right, expensive um, meter, which you have to calibrate with uh, pH um, solutions. Mm-hmm. And then immediately it's calibrated correctly. You take a reading because even one degree of temperature change will change the reading, right? So 
what you do is you get some peas and you put two rows of peas about 18 inches apart and about a couple of feet long, right? One you give a nice dose of garden lime to and the other you don't. Now, if the one that gets the garden lime is obviously better than the one that didn't get it, yep, you need some. Mm. Simple as that. Isn't that amazing? It's a a wonderful hobby, Um, very, very therapeutic. It's uh, I'm missing my garden because I've been so busy with my kids and it's holiday time. And um, they're like me when I was a kid, not in, not, not all that interested. Um, but I just love pottering around in the garden now. And I maybe it's a sign of age. I don't know. Getting too old. But I do enjoy it. Now, Wally, uh, we've got to do some gardening stuff. But you put out a wonderful email and you told the story of long ago. Well, it wasn't that long ago in the great scheme of things, but what a different world it was in terms of what we ate, how we gardened, how we grew our most basic thing of food, how we sustained ourselves, and now it's different. Explain your observations from your, what is it, how many score and 10? Yep, right. Yep. There was I had a um friend, Henry Nom, um when I was about 10, 12 years old from memory. What year would that have been roughly? Uh well, I was born in 45, so yeah, on 12, that makes it 57, mm-hmm. thereabouts. And his father was a Chinese market garden, and he had a big um block of land just on the edge of Palmas North which is now all Palmer's North anyway. But back then it was um, a market garden. His wife was a Maori lady. And wow. I, I used to go there in the weekends and help um, harvest the cabbages or tomatoes and so forth for the market on Monday when they went off. And my reward back then was to have a meal at their house that evening. I had my tea there. One week it would be a beautiful, traditional Chinese food. The next week would be Mary Kai. <laughs> yeah, it was magic. It really and was. And even then, even then, you're 12 years old and it was 1957, you enjoyed Chinese food. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was delicious. Um, and and then the Mary Kai, that's very funny. Um, what a wonderful country we have that, Maori and Chinese could marry and get on with life. That's right. Yeah, and quite have a, kids. Quite, quite a number, I think, of Chinese uh, settlers here um, did um, marry Maori woman. Mm. Um, it was not on Kelman by any means. Now, here's the now tell me this thing. though: why why would you be working all day? Like, if you said to my kids, "If you work all day, I'll give you a Chinese takeout," they'd look at me and think. Well, I'm going to get dinner anyway. Like, hmm. like here you are, twelve years old, and you'd work all day for your own dinner. Yeah, yeah. You'd, well, you'd have got dinner at home, right? Oh yes, of course. But, but it wouldn't uh, have been Chinese. No, it'd have been uh, Kiwi fare. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anyway, back then, um, 
and I subsequently learned further that the only fertiliser that was used was basically blood and bone, right? There was no NPK fertilisers, et cetera. And back then, the freezing works and the works, the avatars and so forth, they produced a lot of really rich blood and bone. We don't see that today. What we're getting today is a far cry from it in actual fact because a lot of that that. blood and bone um, now goes into dog biscuits and things like that, which they make more money from. But way back then, and the works would put it into what we call ton bags, you know, the big uh, wool bales. Um, Now, my half-brother, he told me this, that at a certain time of the year, and I think it was PGG Wrightsons or something, they got all these bales in of uh, blood and bone. And all the Chinese market gardeners in the area would come along with their wives and they would um, look at the what's name and the wife's job was wet a finger, put it into the blood and bone and taste it. Wow. And she would say yes or no to it. Now, I don't know what the difference would be, but they could taste. I would say, right, I'm taking that ton bag. My wife says, good, it's good. <laughs> okay. So that was basically what they used. They put that into the soil, and I would presume that they used any animal manures, horse manure, anything like that they had. Their soil was rich. You couldn't put a spade into the soil without cutting a few worms in half. That's how good it was. And it's just like you find with your compost now with the worms. They just multiply tons of worms. If you've got worms, you're doing everything okay. Yes. It's a good indication in your garden if there's no worms of any consequence, you might find the odd one, but you should ideally put your spade in and find half a dozen worms. Got it. Okay. Simple as that, right? And in a good soil, that's what you find. But one of the problems, of course, is people water their gardens with chlorinated water. Yes. Oh, my God. Worms hate that. So I've had people contact me and say, well, I've got worms in my compost bin, but I haven't got any in the garden. And even though I put them in the garden, they disappear. Of course, because of chlorinated water. So you've got to put a filter on, which we have, onto the tap, remove the chlorine, and the worms are happy. So that's the first thing to do, to have a good worm And population. they dig your garden for you. Oh, they do, um, because they go through the soil, aerating uh, it. They take up um, soil from down below and bring it up to the surface. You put your uh, horse manure into there, and they will go through the horse manure, taking it into their body and putting out worm casts at the other end, right? So you've got this beautiful uh, factory working for you yes. in the thousands. Or and hundreds. you can see it. Yeah. Um, the results are really, really good. Mm. So back then, vegetable plants were not forced to grow. In other words, your cabbage would grow at its own speed naturally in the soil, and it would be relatively free of any problems because it was a healthy cabbage, right? 
if you cut that cabbage off and took it home and cooked it, it would stink the kitchen out. Remember? In I the old do days? remember that. I always just look back on it and blame my mother's cooking. Yeah. Uh, Different cabbage. Cooked cabbage. They would stink you out of the house. Yeah. But you cook a cabbage today from the supermarket, you wouldn't even know you're cooking it. Right. Okay. When plants are allowed to grow at their own speed naturally, they do several things. First of all, they take up all the goodness available in the soil. And if you're using things like magic botanic liquid, of course, that's mineral rich. They're taking that all up. And they grow very healthy because if they get attacked by pests or diseases, they have their own little chemical factory, which they tend to um, offset the problems. In other words, like ourselves, we have an immune system. They have mm-hmm. an immune system. When they're attacked by a disease, they set the immune system into function and they overcome the disease, right? So they're healthy, right? They can look after themselves pretty well. They don't need chemical sprays. But if you do use chemical sprays on them, um, then they think, oh, this is nice. I don't have to do all that work making up my own protection because this guy's going to come along. And I'll just says, rely on Rodney coming along with yeah, a sprayer. With a sprayer. Um, <laughs> with his, um, Even though he's going to eat me later on. <laughs> concoctions. <laughs> so the difference today is, Market gardeners, which I feel really sorry for them because I I don't know how they make any money of any consequence. Well, the key with their land is they've got to try and get as many crops in and out as possible. And if they can do two or three crops a year on the same piece of dirt, um, they've got two or three incomes coming in, right, from their returns. So... To make that happen, they have to force the plants to grow. And nitrogen fertilizers, urea, um, sulfate of ammonia, um, that sort of uh, stuff is used, potassium nitrate. That forces the plants to grow. Now, when a plant is forced to grow, it's not going to be healthy. It's uh, going to be sickly, in actual fact. And when a plant is sickly in nature, we have nature's cleaners come along to take it out. And that is all the pests and all the diseases that happen, mm. right? That's the idea of them. They're not there just to annoy us. They're there to clean up the weak plants to make way for the healthy plants, mm. right? So the commercial grower can't afford to have holes in the cabbage or anything like that or blemishes. So to prevent that, he has to use various chemicals sprayed to keep them looking perfect on the supermarket shelf, right? Now, it might be perfect looking, but it's actually got a lot of chemicals from all those sprays in it. It hasn't got a lot of nutritional value, and it doesn't smell when you cook it, and when you eat it, it doesn't taste anything. You've got to put garnishes on it to make it taste good. Mm. So if you're growing yourself naturally using magic botanic liquid, your horse manure, et cetera, et cetera, whatever, 
and you harvest that plant, that cabbage, and you cook it and eat it, it tastes bloody nice. Right? It does. And, and it's like an organic egg or a free range egg versus a battery egg, right? Mm. They taste completely different, or a chook that's been uh, running around the countryside, or oh, venison, you know, wild, wild venison versus, you know, something that's been very caged. rich. Very rich. Yeah. And we don't even like it because we think, oh, that's a bit gamey. It's got too much flavor. Yeah. And yeah, true. The way we cook now, I notice, is everyone's piling on the herbs and the garnishes and the sauces. Whereas if you get a nice potato and a nice carrot and some nice peas and a nice little bit of meat, it's as tasty as one thing. It is. And you don't eat much of it. No. That, that's well, the other key to it because the problem is. You're getting being, your nutrition. Yeah. Like people sit down to a meal uh, of meat and veggies from a supermarket, right? Now, it's low in nutritional value. We know that. So after they finish their meal, they feel hungry. Why? Mm. They, they ate a big meal. Mm. The body is actually saying to them, excuse me, where's all the goodies? Where's the vitamins? Where's the minerals? Mm. Where's the antioxidants? You know, where's those things I need for my health? So the only way that people interpret that feeling is they think they haven't eaten enough and they feel peckish. Right, mm. and so they get the bag of chippies out and dip ice cream, and, and, and <laughs> do, 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 do. hence obesity. Now think back, 50, 60, 70 years ago, no fat people. No, there was. I remember at school, one boy he was overweight, but he had a um, glandular thyroid problem or something. But everybody was lean and mean. As I well, it's amazing when you look at pictures from the 50s and 60s and you see people walking down Queen Street or Colombo Street or um, just everyday people are going off to work and they're all slim. Mm. School kids are all slim. And like when I went to school in the 60s, if there was one fat kid in the school, he would be remarkable and probably teased a little bit by others. I could never tease a kid. But they would actually look normal going to school now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every, another kid, thing, every kid looks fat now. Right. And another thing, too, back then, remember, we used to get a little bottle of milk. Yes. Every morning yes. Uh, at playtime or whatever That was your it was. morning tea. And, and look. Out of a school of what three, four, five hundred people, kiddies, nobody had a problem drinking their milk. No, but the milk because tasted the milk was good. different. Tasted good. It tastes good, and there's none of this problem that you're going to um, have convulsions or something if you drank milk, as we see now. Lots yes. of people or children. Oh, I'm kids. lactose intolerant. Yeah, yeah. lactose intolerance. Now, and who who had ever heard of you know I'm gluten. I'm gluten intolerant. That was never heard of. No. All this has come about, well, we don't quite know. It's possibly the food has changed is a big thing. And um, they're living in a – the food has fundamentally changed. I'm a baker. I love baking bread. Right. And the process by which they make bread is truly, truly shocking. 
So they make bread. It was invented, started inventing, trying to work out how to make bread with less labor and quicker in the war. And they didn't solve the problem until the early 60s. And basically, it's applying chemicals and battering the bread and the dough. And what it means is that the wheat proteins aren't properly digested by the yeast and bacteria. Right. And what that means is um, the the proteins in the wheat that are designed to upset a mammalian gut are still present. And that's why people always feel heavy or a bit sick after eating bread. And the bread doesn't taste good. And then you get a properly made piece of bread and it's digestible to your body. My daughter, is the reason I got making bread from a very young age, she couldn't take anything to do with gluten. She can eat sourdough bread till the cows come home. But if right. she eats commercial bread, she'll be sick. Right, yep. Now, here's the point with it. Um, at one stage, of course, with the wheat in New Zealand, uh, when the crop was ready to harvest, it would be sprayed with Roundup to mm-hmm. descant it, dry mm-hmm. it out, make the mm-hmm. harvesting easier. Um, I believe that process has stopped now because the millers got the wind up with the um, Monsanto thing in California, millions and millions of dollars payout, that they uh, didn't want their flour to have... Um, I did not know that. Uh, Lyphosate is the chemical. In. So they told the growers, you don't do that or we won't take your uh, wheat and mill it. So that's as I'm led to believe what happened. Uh, it's made a big difference because prior to that, a lot of the flour uh, in circulation for bread, cakes, et cetera, et cetera, had a good dose of Roundup in it. And The other thing that we're picking up too, Wally, aren't we? Just casually, we're not scientists and we're not um, got a white coat on, and but we can observe things. We never had kids with the difficulties and mental health issues that they have now. True. And uh, that is quite possibly something in the environment, something toxic or nutritionally deficient that is occurring in our food supply because it has changed so radically from what it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. Right, yes. And I've read um, studies where children suffering from attention deficits and all sorts of behaviour problems were taken and given really proper, good, organically, naturally grown food without the, all the chemicals and so forth, and within a few days, completely changed. Mm. became just normal like any child should be. Um, so the chemicals in the food chain, and let's face it, on TV the other day, they said diet drinks have got aspartame. Aspartame is now declared to be a possible carcinogenic. And we were talking about this 20 years ago that yeah. aspartame was. Now, aspartame, in actual fact, was a Monsanto product. And as I'm led to believe, the story goes that one of the scientists was making a new weed killer and he happened by accident put his fingers to his lips and went, 
Oh, my God, that's sweet. <laughs> ah, yeah, aspartame. Here we go. <laughs> All yeah, our diet cokes and God knows what, uh, yeah. no sugar. And in actual fact, another study I read that people that um, had a lot of these artificial sweeteners, aspartame, they actually put on weight. They didn't lose it. No. And we've also lost the art of cooking, haven't we? True. Um. The story in your email had the lovely kicker that you haven't yet got to, and I think it was Mr. Nom, where he got his vegetables for his table from. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. That was yeah, some that years was later. Ah, oh, yes, years later. Tell us years later, um, more like, I think it was about 10 years ago, uh, just outside of Palmerston North, a market gardener, Chinese gentleman, um, big market garden, once again growing all sorts of veggies. But his home, which was part of the land, was nicely fenced off around from the rest of the paddocks where all the veggies were. And I happened to be visiting one day and at the house, and I looked out, and he's got all these veggies growing on his side of the fence, the house side. And I looked at this, I said, you, you're growing veggies here and you're growing veggies out there in the paddocks. He said, yes. I said, well, why? You just go out in the paddock, you pick cabbages and cauliflowers and all, all sorts of stuff. Acres and acres and acres. Yeah, acres of it. And he said, oh, no. He said, not good for family. I said, what do you mean? He said, the stuff out there is dangerous, not good for family health, because he was growing it like you are, naturally, on his side of the fence for his family to eat, full of nutrition, good taste, good flavour, the whole bit. The stuff out there was for the market, for the people that uh, go to the supermarket. It's terrifying, Wally. It's a fact of life. And, and he knew the chemicals that he was using, forcing the growth and so forth, um, because the Chinese were, let's face it. Uh, oh, thousands of, and thousands and thousands of years of very clever. Of gardening, and, yeah. And lot, very intense gardening. Extremely. Uh, double cropping. Um, yeah. The the food was all uh, human waste, yes. human manure and pig manure, basically, because most of them had pigs. I, I did it. I read a whole lot of stuff about them, and they had a kind of a brew thing where they brew up the stuff and um, apply it to the garden. Now, I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> the chap told me one time, he, he said, when I was a young fellow and um, I was courting my girlfriend, on Sundays I would go to the, be invited to their house for a meal. And so I'd take some veggies out of my father's garden right, and I'd take it to them and give it to them. And they were always impressed about these vegetables. And they said, look, they're big, they're beautiful veggies, they've got lovely flavour. Uh, what does your dad do? He said, I could never tell them because what dad used to do was every so often a septic tank, he'd bucket out the septic tank into the veggie garden cover it over with soil, and plant veggies. 
and <laughs> coming from the well, septic tank. It's funny you say that. I'd love listeners who are of a older nature to contact me about this because I have a distinct memory of being a little boy and this would be early 1960s, very early 1960s. And, you know, you had the the tin in which you went to the toilet in outside. That's right. And I distinctly remember my uncle digging it into the garden, like literally digging mm. a trench like we're talking about burying the cabbage, pouring the drum in and turning the soil over it. Now, Childhood memories are funny because it might have been a nightmare or something. I don't know if that's true because I've understood since that you've got to be very careful mixing human waste with, you know, growing things. Could that have been possible, Wally, or do you think I imagined it? No, 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 definitely possible. The key to it, of course, is you don't put it on top of the soil and leave it there. Yes. Because only it's going to create bacteria and break down. You put it under the soil. Yeah. Now, anything going under the soil, including our bodies when we die, yeah, will, will convert it back to good food for plants. So, isn't that a great thing? Because I, I, I was thinking back on that and thought, I wonder if that was real. And they would have had chooks that have poultry manure going in, and they all had big gardens. And then, and the, and you'd go outside. I can remember it being terrifying at night as a little boy going to the toilet. And having a flashlight and the bit of the toilet newspaper, or if you're lucky, a toilet roll on the side of that wooden bench, and spiders and God knows what in the outside toilet. The long <laughs> drop. <laughs> you had a little ecosystem that you had to contend with as a little boy going to the toilet. Um, my kids won't do that when we go camping now, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> And the idea that that would be dug into the soil as sort of like a, you know, Chinese traditional gardening, and they never got sick. No, never. No, they were healthy because the food was healthy. It's the thought of it. I mean, to say the same thing you can say, like you could take horse manure, pig manure, cow manure, chook manure, and put that quite happily in your garden, yes. right? No problems at all. Now, how about dog manure? Yeah. Oh, no, you can't put dog manure into your garden. It comes from the dogs. Or cat manure, which people complain about cats when they put a lovely deposit of cat manure yeah. into their garden. Yeah. But dog manure, just like any other manure, is, yeah. is, is okay. The thought is, I think, that because dogs eat meat and, and cows eat grass, that the cow manure is okay because it's grass. Um, yeah, derivative derived from, but meat to the dogs and then dog manure. But I remember when I had several Sharpay dogs, and they used to. I had a long driveway and shrubs on one side, and they used to have their toilets along that side uh, underneath the um, pittosporums, and it was mostly natives that I had there, and, and those things grew like you wouldn't believe. From all this dog manure. <laughs> In fact, the owner of the place, because I was leasing it, he, he complained bitterly about the size of these great big triffid pittosporums and native plants and and 
eventually he he, uh, he said, I'll pay to have them cut out, <laughs> and which he duly did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was, that, it was dog manure that did it. So the key thing for your garden and your health and your children's health is good nutritious food, which means pretty much growing it yourself. And if you're growing it yourself, the key to that is a healthy soil. Right. And the key to a healthy soil is not endlessly digging it, but like you say, getting some manure in it and letting the worms do the work, using a bit of paper, newspaper and cardboard. And you can quickly turn a very small part of a section or a little a section, and you could start growing vegetables and improve your health out of sight. Oh, yes. Yep, for sure. I, I am feeling healthier, Wally. And you know how you don't know whether it's your mind or not, and it's a placebo, but I've talked myself into it. But I was feeling a bit down on nutritious greens, and I have literally a handful of those sprouts every day. Right. On my little sprouter. Yes. And it's quite a tasty wee snack. Sometimes I just have them raw. Sometimes I fry them up with a bit of salt and put them on the side of my plate. But those sprouts have been rather wonderful for me. I've enjoyed eating them, but I'm actually feeling um, I'm getting quite a bit of nutrition out of them. You are. Yeah, for sure. And, and see, one of the problems back 50, 60, 70 years ago, everybody had quarter acre section. Yes. Right? Nowadays, um, the house takes most of the section, and of course, it's not quarter of an acre, it's probably uh, just one tenth of an acre or yeah. <laughs> one eighth of an acre or something. Yeah. And it's just concrete around and a bit of room at the back for a patio a or something, yeah. barbecue, and that's it. So, people in that circumstance, they don't have any land to actually grow veggies in, mm. other than they can do the sprouts like using that uh, four-tier mm-hmm. sprouter from Egmont Seeds and have that on their kitchen windowsill and do the sprouts. Add the magic botanic liquid into it, yep, of course, I'm into doing the that. water because that will mineralise it more. And then they could have a few pots or um, mm. containers outside where they're growing some uh, spring onions, um, mm. some lettuce, um, just the easy stuff, a bit of silver beets, spinach. Um, and, of course, they could also grow um, those little veggies which are cut off, the whole mix, you buy packets of them and so mm. forth. In fact, in the supermarket, they sell bags of them, um, salad veggies. They're only young plants um, which you cut off and put into your salad or whatever you mm. do with them. Mm. So th- those things can be done easily, even with no land. Yes. And then uh, it is funny how we're conditioned, though, because there's an organic shop near where I go. And you walk around the supermarket, and it's beautiful. I love supermarkets because there's so much product. Some of them have like 20,000 different products. They have um, amazing stock control. And then you walk through the vegetable produce section, and it literally looks like a Garden of Eden. 
there's these beautiful vegetables everywhere you look. There's fruits all year round, without a blemish, without a mark, and they're all nicely presented. And then you hop across to the organic market, and <laughs> the fear doesn't look as good, does it? No, no, it's natural, and there yeah. might be some holes in the leaves, Ble and... blemishes, and all the rest of it. And you think, oh, that's I don't like that one. Oh, I don't like that apple. I want a nice shiny apple. And you so you rush back to the supermarket. But what you're learning and what you're teaching me is that you have to get nutrition, and you're almost you're losing it by having it look good. Yeah. yeah. I've got an old apple tree. There's an old apple tree that no one's touched um, for years and years and years on where, near where I live. And one of the neighbors said, Oh, you should go and grab those apples. And he says, they, they taste great. Well, I went up there and, you know, there's some caterpillars and the old tree sitting there, rough as guts. I got one of those apples and ate it. It didn't look great, but it was like being, like you say, a child. we're going to sound like old men talking like on the Muppets. It, <laughs> it was, it, it took me back to being a child. It was a yeah. real apple. It was a real apple with taste. Right. Yeah. We're going to get, what, we have run out of time to talk about real gardening. What should I quickly be doing in my garden this week? What's one thing? Well, if you haven't done so, you could be planting your garlic, shallots. Got, um, that Got them sure. in. Um, I, I built, did I tell you that I built my, you know how you said to build a bench garden with corrugated iron? Uh-huh. I did that. Right. But I added a wee innovation because down the road, a fellow was giving away two shower doors. Okay. And I made them at 45 degrees and put a glass door on. So it's like a mini glass house and off the ground. Filled right. it up just like you said with house manure. And I've planted lettuces in there and away they go. Yeah. Good. So I did that and all that sort of stuff. And I've been like preparing my soil for uh, my potatoes and my yams next, I thought I would do. Right. So getting my soil into good condition. Yep, no, most important. Um, see, if because you've got a um, tunnel house now, you could be looking at germinating early tomato seeds. Yes. Uh, but you really need a heat pad to okay. germinate. So uh, once again, I think Edmont seeds or garden seeds and so forth, all you need is a, a pad which – um, will generate heat underneath, so you sit your punnet on that. Now, here's an interesting thing I'm going to do an experiment shortly with, and you might like to try this too. You know, you go to the Bunnings or wherever and you buy um, a six-pack of cabbages, yeah, right? And they're in a cell pack, so they're individual, dum, 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 and you plant them out, you wet them down, and take them out of the what's name carefully and you plant them right now there's six in a pack what i'm going to do with three of them is i'm going to get the scissors and i'm going to cut the bottom part the roots off 
and the dirt straight through the whole lot. So I'm going to cut the roots halfway down, zap. So the roots are going to be cut, which in my mind, they're going to then generate a lot of new roots from because they've been cut. The other three, of course, I'll sit, plant alongside, and they'll just as they came out of the cell pack, and then see what the difference is. And what do you think will be the difference? A remarkable difference in growth. Because for the cut ones. Yeah, the cut ones will just ramp ahead. How interesting. Yeah, because when you cut a root of a plant, it creates new roots, right? Mm. When you cut the end off a branch, it creates a lot more new branches. Yes. As above, so below. Mm. As above, so below. That's our mantra. Now, tell me this, Wally. Um, could we be, I don't have power out where my tunnel house is, so I can't do a hot, hot pad. I've got some tomatoes there sprouted, and they're up like half an inch, an inch. Oh, good. And But I could do an experiment where I could plant some tomatoes inside, could I? Mm-hmm. And then transplant them out when it warms up. Right. Yes, you could. The only problem inside, you, you don't like... have overhead light, yes. and they will stretch to the window. Okay. Right? So that, that is your biggest barrier. Okay. Well, I'll see how my ones go in my tunnel house because I don't have a um, – I, I have a thermometer in there, and it goes down it – get, it occasionally gets to zero. It's about four degrees warmer in my tunnel house than outside, but it doesn't get the cold wind. And then I don't know – my thermometer only tells me the maximum minimum. It doesn't tell me how long it was cold, but what it gets is very warm in the day. And right. everything's looking quite healthy at this stage. They may all bolt, of course. Okay. That's, that's a gardening term, Wally. Well, here's a tip. Yep. If you've got a lawn, right, and you yep. mow lawn. You connect yep. the lawn clippings, yep. and then you make a trench about a foot deep or so. Yeah. And about a foot wide. Yeah. And you put your lawn clippings into the trench and pack it down and – as much as you can do, and then you cover it over with uh, two or three inches of soil, right? Then you plant your seed or whatever in that. The heat from down below Uh, really boosts your plants up above. Got it. Because you've heated the soil. The air temperature is not so important. Plants love warm soil. Well, I've done that because I've got them in – I've got – them in compost. I've got them with um, the bought Bunnings compost, a couple of inches thick, and below that's horse manure, which is nice and warm, 20 degrees. Right, yeah. So that, that... Wally, how does someone get a hold of you? Okay, they can phone me on 0800 466 464. That's 0800 466 464. They can email me um, at Wally J, uh, yeah, that's a complicated one. It's Wally J R at gardennews.co.nz with only one N in Garden News. Or, as I have found, when I put Wally Richards into my Google, and I don't know if this is my Google, the first half a dozen pages come up with me. They do, because I had to quickly Google you to get your phone number a minute ago because I didn't have my phone. 
handy and up you pop. And I love it because you got this web page that was done in 1996. You're way ahead of your time because 1996 in internet time is sort of the Garden of Eden. It's amazing that you had a web page set up. I got to tell you, and I got to say that you sent it to me, you haven't invoiced me. So I'm sort of, I feel as though um, I got to mention that because I, I I love it that you sent it to me and it's very kind. But I got it, I ordered it and you haven't billed me, but it wasn't that expensive. That magic botanic liquid, I'm going to be using that because right. it works. And I was somewhat skeptical. Brilliant. So, uh, and if anyone has any problems, give Wally a ring. Uh, he loves talking. He knows gardening backwards. And we will have you back on again shortly, Wally, to give us an update. And soon, life in the garden is going to get busy, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 fruit trees are coming in. Roses are coming in. Um, so it's a busy time of the year. Shall we do fruit trees and roses next week? And, yeah. um, and anyone with any questions, send them to them, and we'll do your questions. I got it down, roses and fruit trees, because I want to learn about when I how I should do my fruit trees next. I got a, right. ha I haven't got any other than that old apple tree. I want to plant some new fruit trees. I love plums. I love nectarines. I'm in Otago. They must be able to. I must be able to figure out how to make them work. Thank you, Wally Richards. It's always a pleasure. I love reminiscing about those old days and those funny stories. I love to think that my uncle was actually did do that. And I didn't just have a nightmare and dream that that's <laughs> what was happening. I um, think we have to be very thoughtful about our nutrition. And I'm not the best example of it on earth, but we can all do better. And you don't have to change much to make a big difference, it would seem. And this is an important conversation because in a funny way, we have become slaves to big corporate interests who don't have our health or our prosperity or our wellness front and center of their thinking. And we can do better than that, I think. And we've got Wally Richards sharing with us a lifetime of experience and anecdote. You're on Real Talk with Reality Check Radio, it's Rodney Hyde. Thank you, Wally. Thanks for having you along. We'll talk soon. Pleasure. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And it's my great pleasure to dip into the mailbag, see what we've got. So remember, this is my reward. This is, it's not why I do it, but it's a big help. So email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send me a text to 2057. Uh, here's one from Peter. A highly relevant word has been left out of the smart city story. Voluntary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's just let us choose where we live and how we live, not have it come down from the top. This guy sounds like a globalist. Talk about puffery language in Wokery. That was our smart city guy, Corey, Corey Gray. This guy flying all around the world. What is his carbon footprint? Double standards. Yeah. Hi, Rodney. This guy from smart cities is nothing more than a bureaucratic globalist drone. You must have incredible self-control to stop yourself from laughing out loud and 
telling him what an idiot he is. Cheers, Jeff. Well, I'm actually trying to discover out what this whole smart city thing is. Here's Aaron. This is about smart cities. This is spying. What a horrible world he's describing. He's well and truly indoctrinated. What a shame. It's a funny thing happening about this technology, isn't it? And technologists, people with computers and that, and they sort of got carried away on it. Maybe make a lot of money, think they're extremely clever, and then want to tell us what to do. I mean, Bill Gates is obviously a, a clever guy, but what he's trying to do now is scary. And Smart City seems to be a bit about that. Here's uh, a message. It's about control, control, control. My God, what is happening to us? Here's one from Jenny. I can't resist commenting on Corey Gray. He just said, if you believe that social media is spying on you, then rather than commenting on it, don't use social media. He's also stated that he believes in climate change, yet his job is flying around the world promoting smart cities. He's also implied that the world is overpopulated, yet he has seven or eight children. Isn't that hypocrisy? I want you to do this, but I have no intention of applying my own beliefs to me. Well, I don't know about Coria, but um, I feel as though I've got to be careful because he was a guest. But we do see a lot of hypocrisy in the world, don't we, by people telling us what to do and having big houses and jets. I can't believe what I'm hearing. This is absolutely insane. Cheers, Jeff. Corey does a great job selling the smart city concept. The big problem with smart cities lies with the involvement of big tech and government who will demand oversight of all the infrastructure and ownership of data and services. So it will be Big Brother who have the scale to monitor the data and make decisions around what we can or cannot do. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, when you talk about, it's like those surveillance cameras down the street. I hate them. I absolutely hate them. And I don't remember being asked if we were okay with surveillance cameras. And it seems like you can't walk around a city in New Zealand without being on a camera. Don't like it. Oh, I guess it's to keep us safe. <laughs> Don't like it. And I can imagine you might be in Belclutha and be on a camera and not realise. It's just cameras everywhere. Uh, here's one for Peter. Read the Smart Cities, Corey Gray. Who are the top 20 sponsors of his business organisation? The answer to this question may greatly clarify what the real objective of this organisation is. Yeah, thanks, Peter. It was a good question. I should have asked that. Thank you for that interview with Corey Rodney. I feel a lot better about the whole concept of smart cities now, and we'll check out the website, Linda. Thank you, Linda. Here's Ellen. Just heard the first half of the discussion with Corey Reed Smart Cities. The very name is oxymoronic, and the concept would deliver disaster like no other. Big brother on steroids. All that aside, it's simply not achievable based on resources. See links below. But first about AI and how it has already got way out of control in terms of censorship and hobbling freedom of speech. It seems irreversible given the power of AI and how it has been focused. Mark's tweet-limiting move is to prevent the completion of the AI censorship test. Yes, I saw that on Twitter, That I don't follow it, but it does sound scary. Um, very, very scary. We need to get into that more, this algorithms that are doing the censoring. Amazing, isn't it? Hi, Rodney. Great interview on Smart Cities. Does sound very much like more control from 
unelected, unaccountable people from who know where, who knows where. After the controls of COVID and now climate, I find his views terrifying. Communism wrapped up in a nice bow. Paul, yes, the experience of COVID does has been good in the sense that it's made us cynical and sceptical and not accepting of authority. I think that's been the, the big plus of it. And when flash ideas come along, we're much more questioning. Uh, Rodney et al. Corey was good for a laugh, but Kathy Jameson, ah, Bloodworth bottling. Isn't she just? And no, according to Dr. Martin's release documents, attempts on coronavax have been intense for 25 years. And in 2005, Fauci himself bragged to the WHO that never mind, HCQ is brilliant for purpose as both mitigation and prophylactic. Cheers, Mark. Uh, someone sent me Kramner's uh, substack about government ignoring expert advice for kids. Yes, that was great. Um, Rodney, I'm listening to Kathy. How can this be made public? Linda, well, we're doing our best. Um, I enjoy listening to Kathy, a mandated psychiatrist. Good on you, Rupert. Um, hi, Rodney. I'd like to know, did the MPs make themselves exempt from the jab? And if so, how many of them took the jab? Thanks, Trevor. Well, my understanding is they all took the jab. And my understanding is, is that um, they wouldn't let you into parliament. I wouldn't have, I would have loved to have been there and not got the jab and had them try to deny me entry to parliament. Because when you're elected MP, that can't be done. Very disappointing that not one MP tried. It would have been fantastic because an MP can't be prevented from entering the chamber when Parliament's sitting. Uh, the Speaker can't do that because you haven't had a jab. That would be outrageous. Winston Peters, if you're for real, then act on this OAA release. Now, one thing I guess about Winston is, hey, fantastic politician, fantastic charisma, um, brilliant but doesn't seem to quite deliver. Uh, attention, Rodney, Chippy at, at the World Economic Forum China follows her socialist friend Jacinda Ardern's footsteps. She was a WEF Young World Leader graduate in 2014. Chippy and Jacinda developed a friendship and she ended up resigning as president of the Young Socialist Party. The Prime Minister reigns were always going to be a deep state actor that the WF can control. Rob, the WF is amazing, isn't it? you got to say they're extremely successful putting on programs and getting all these leaders along. How do they do that? Goodness knows. Excellent program this morning, Rodney. Thanks to you and the RCR team. Peter, thank you, Peter. I was instantly put off Jacinda Ardern when she used the uh, tragedy of the mosque shootings. Me too. Absolutely me too. Wearing a hijab, selling herself and using people's death to elevate herself, flying the virtue signaling flag to win popularity. Yuck, Paul. It was yuck. I have to say I was offered before then. Um, I was offered before she was, she, I was just offered, but that be kind is what did me in. Very good on being kind, Andrew. Thank you. Dear Rodney, thank you for the insightful interview with Corey Gray about the 15 and 20 minute cities. Well, he was smart cities and I was trying to work out um, what the difference was. I listened intentionally and oh my, was it informative? I heard words like manage, which is a euphemism for control in my book. I was not surprised when he played exactly the same emotional manipulation game the government did during the COVID response. Your grandma, grandpa, elderly parent scenario. And then came the part I waited for. There'll be rules and it will be your choice to follow it or not. It's just 
don't have to carry the consequence, you know, like when you speed or when you decide not to take the vaccine. Of course, you had a choice. You can either choose to take the jab or lose your job. That's a choice, isn't it? I wonder what the rules will be and the consequences for breaking it. Oh, and the wonderful overreach with surveillance. Nah, nothing wrong with being surveilled 24-7 like in China. All that data will only help the community. You know, don't be such a conspiracy theorist. Did I pick a hint of condescension when you referred to anyone questioning the 15-minute cities? Oh, and I have to tell him we live in New Zealand where it rains right through the winter. Do you really think I'm going to walk 15 minutes to the supermarket or doctor in the freezing cold or rain? Not a chance, mate. I do appreciate the open conversation about these topics, though, and also your non-biased attitude during those interviews. This is very refreshing and different from the mainstream media that will always get a, into an interview with a preconceived opinion. Kind regards, Annalene. Thank you, Annalene. A very thoughtful email. That's very encouraging. Uh, in reference to smart cities, this is about transforming our world 2030 agenda for sustainable de development. It's 101 socialism in stealth mode, and people aren't paying attention to the noise this individual is actually speaking about. Read the 2030 agenda, it's there in plain sight, Chris. It's funny, isn't it? It is there in plain sight and has been for years, and all these official documents that politicians have been signing up to. This sort of dystopian world. Uh, and yet, if you point it out, you're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> no, we're just pointing it out, what they've been saying for 30 years. Hi, Rodney. Read your interview with Kathy on the 4th of July. Your personal COVID vax batch number can be obtained through the MOH for international travel. Maybe this could be correlated with the OA to confirm valid validity. Reference attached example. Additionally, there are seven coronaviruses circulating the earth currently, ranging from common cold to influenza types. No successful vaccine has ever been made, as the virus has too many strains and mutates, mutates too quickly. Loving the conversation. Keep it up, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Hi, Rodney. Interesting discussion with Cora Gay over smart cities. It made me sense. It made sense when explaining the good uses of technology therein. I'm still uneasy about misuse, however. Coming to mind is the Oxfordshire experiment, where, for example, people were told they shouldn't leave their 15-minute periphery during the experiment. It looks like a potential prison compound to me. Regards, Mark. Yeah, it looks like that to me too. Your interview with Corey Gray was interesting, to say the least. This is the most draconian system that can ever happen to the population of the world. I must admit he's a good salesperson. This is just a way of control. We'll have no privacy. We'll be controlled in every way. They will control everything in your home, turn off your power, water, lock your, water, water, lock your doors if you don't conform with what they want to. This already happens in China. Think UNWF and the WHO. This is where this is coming from, supported by globalist governments. Don't be sucked in. Corey will be getting big paid bucks from someone to promote this. Well, I don't know about that, but yes, I share your concern. Susan, dear Rodney, I've been enjoying your shows and your development as an interviewer. Oh, thank you. Please follow up on the Smart Cities interview with some critique. For instance, the CEO admitted that far fewer elderly people came to sports events due to lack of mobile phones and QR-coded jab data. Outrageous, of course. Neither should ever ever have been needed anyway. Cash must remain in use, and of course, no coerced jabs ever, so COVID panic was used partly to force us into certain technologies. Keep up the good work, Susan. Thank you, Susan. That's very lovely. Here's one from Mike. 
I'm nine minutes into your interview with Corey Gray, and we already know he's into tech in a big way, and his speak is that of a politician. It seems to me all word soup and very flowery. These people always sound so nice, but there's always a hidden agenda. I believe with some digging by someone who knows what they're doing, who knows what they're doing, will find out what the real agenda is. Smart cities are causing all kinds of societal disruptions and trouble. Look at Oxford, England. This is not what we want to happen here, and our councils are pushing for them, so I'm saying now beware. I take it back to my first comments. He sounds like a politician. And how do you know a politician is lying? His lips are moving. Beware. Cheers, Mike. Thank you, Mike. After hearing all of it, Rodney, this is Mike again. My mind has not changed. And again, I say beware. His ideal may be nice and fluffy, but the outcome of it is all surveillance and monitoring to keep control. This is total intrusion into our lives. Flowery political word soup is what I get from that interview with a lot of hidden agenda. Yes, and I think we have become immunized somewhat from that, haven't we, with the COVID experience? Rodney, I heard your interview on Tuesday, 4th of July, with Kathy about her research in the VAX. I'm a homeopath and seeing a lot of severe damage to people and their nervous systems. Thank goodness we have some fantastic homeopathic medicines to help people detox and clear that out of their system and bring people back to their vital state. If you want to deal with the chat, I'd be interested. Nice. I want to thank Rodney for his interview with Corey, the smart city CEO. I want to applaud Rodney for connecting with Corey and getting him to tell us exactly what smart city is all about. I was absolutely delighted to learn that I'll be protected and secured <laughs> as all my movements will be vetted. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I love this. But not to worry, my face will be will be blackened out. I'm sure I can trust him with that. Corey also made me feel secure by telling me I have nothing to worry about privacy as government and big mis bigness. <laughs> we'll make sure it is all secured. Governments are well known. <laughs> Governments, <laughs> I'm, I apologize. Governments are well known for keeping all the promises. <laughs> and they will never change any laws, even in times of crisis. So I don't need to worry about any privacy issues. I will also I was also pleasantly reassured. <laughs> I was also pleasantly reassured to learn how smart cities can help make future vaccine passport. <laughs> well, that is it. What a blessing in disguise. What a what a blessing in disguise. Smart cities will help us all to make sure we're all vaccinated and then from the digital papers. Corey couldn't have chosen a better example for convincing us to jump to his ideas. Oh, I'm going to have to stop. I was so excited to hear that Smart Cities will even monitor how I recycle rubbish. Oh, this is good for the planet, so it must be good for me as well. Oh, oh dear. Sorry, suggested that he only mentioned the basic features of smart cities. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to learn my sort of other advanced features we should anticipate. Please invite Barry for a second interview. Oh, I can't now. I'm still left wondering how exactly smart cities can reduce house prices. <laughs> 
Glory mentioned it a few times, but I'm yet to understand how. I suppose it's something for the second interview. Perhaps he has some enhanced features he did not reveal. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, are we blessed? Are we blessed to be alive and to be able to laugh and write an email that good? And I apologize for cracking up through it. Uh, you've had real talk with Rodney Hyde. That was the mailbag. You're on Reality Check Radio. I'm blessed to have you, this audience, truly. I feel it. And I love your emails and your texts. Remember, text at 2057. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. I'm trying to see is your name attached to that one. Mike, yeah, there's a new standard. It's set by Mike. Uh, that has to be the uh, email text of the of the year. Uh, thank you, Mike, and thank you, everyone, because it's a great kindness to text and to email me, and I appreciate it. And I um, having to get off now because I can't stop laughing. We'll talk with Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, and remember, send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. I love it. Or text me, 2057. Well, I sort of miss that we can't have humour with our MPs like we could in the old days. Sort of making jokes about politicians used to be allowed. And... I think some of the best comedy gold from New Zealand came out of comedians taking the mickey out of our politicians, but it's sort of not done anymore, is it? It's sort of all po-faced. But on the plus side, we've got our MPs and our leaders who themselves make a very good comedy. And I'm thinking here particularly of our Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, when he was asked by Sean Plunkett, what is a woman? And he burbled away and didn't know. And the best part was when he said he hadn't pre-formulated an answer uh, to that question. Goodness knows what his mother made of that, uh, what his wife made of that. Um, what is a woman? Uh, i got to pre-formulate a question. That was actually comedy gold to me. And it must be tough being a sort of woke lefty because the politically correct answer isn't a true answer, obviously. It's a polit politically correct answer, and it keeps changing. Uh, it wouldn't have been a problem 10 years ago. Now it is. And then we had, this past little while, a pretty good one, because there's an MP called Ingrid Leary. And it turned out that she went off to a meeting, and it was a meeting hosted by the Mongol mob, and it turned out uh, she was being scoffed at for turning up and, I don't know what, supporting crime, supporting gangs. And so she said, oh, no, 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 no. I was confused. I thought I was at an electoral commission meeting on getting people to enroll. Now, you can imagine what an electoral commission meeting looks like. And you can imagine what a mongrel mob meeting looks like. You can imagine the sort of people that come to a meeting of the Electoral Commission. And you can imagine the sort of people that come to a mongrel mob meeting. No, not the same. I think if you walked in the door, you would tell the difference. 
This MP wants us to believe that she couldn't tell the difference between a mongrel mob meeting and a meeting of the Electoral Commission. Now, she had time to pre-formulate that answer. And what troubles me most about this, does Ingrid Leary and the Labour Party team really, really think that we are stupid, that stupid, that we would buy that excuse? And here's another thought for you. What is wrong with an MP meeting with the mongrel mob? Why couldn't she just own it? And said, yes, they asked me along and I went. I met everyone when I was an MP. Everyone. Because I regarded it as my job. Uh, Parliament to me was a house of representatives. And I was a citizen and I represented everyone, even the down and out. It didn't mean because I met someone that I endorsed their lifestyle or endorsed what they had done. I have to say, too, I was always very interested in people who live different lives to me. But I thought that if life's not going well for you and you're really down on your luck, we live in a small enough country that you should be able to write to an MP and meet them. And so I met hardened criminals. I met people who had pretty disgusting lifestyles. And my attitude was I could never get into trouble for it because I'd just say I'd meet anyone. And I did. I remember getting a, a wonderful letter, letter from a young man who was in Perimarimo. And he asked me to come and see him. And I did. And I sat with him in Perimarimo and we talked and we corresponded further. And it was a heart-wrenching experience going to Perimarimo and seeing this young boy and also to reflect on his victims and his upbringing and to see him as a human being. It enriched me. And also as an MP, I was, in part, I felt responsible for the running of our prisons. So I needed to see what was happening. And I felt also responsible for the people who were incarcerated because I was a parliamentarian. We made the rules and the laws. If I'd been asked to meet with the mongrel mob, I would. So I don't see what the big deal is, is about an MP meeting with the mongrel mob. Again, you're not endorsing the lifestyle. Uh, you, you're not saying you can commit crime. You're not endorsing gangs. But you can still meet with them. And you can see where this leads to. Because if your MPs start to pick and choose who they can meet, we saw what happens with that. Because I was one of the ones that every MP in our parliament refused to meet because I was one of the protesters. I was part of the river of filth and not one MP would meet with me or any other protester. 
at Parliament. And yet, it was a House of Representatives. Well, it wasn't. Because at that point, they didn't represent me. They wouldn't meet with me or any of us in that protest. And I think our parliament lost a lot of legitimacy. So I'm pretty annoyed with Ingrid Leary that she would think we're so stupid that we could buy into the idea that she didn't know that she was at a mongrel mob meeting. Mongrel mob people make themselves pretty distinctive. But I'm also upset with our parliamentary process that would reject the idea of an MP meeting with the mongrel mob. Like I say, it's a job of an MP. We're a small country. Meet every Kiwi. Meet every, every person in this country. Represent them. Why? Because it's a House of Representatives. And we should all feel a part of our country. We should all feel as though our parliament represents us, even when it locks us locks us up for our crimes. We don't stop being a citizen of this country because you're locked up. And MPs can't wash their hands of those that they've locked up and never go and see. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous situation. And I would have thought we should be angry with Ingrid Leary for saying or pretending that she didn't meet with the mongrel mob. And we should be a little bit, a little bit upset with the National Party criticising her for meeting with the mongrel mob. I think it's a great political point for a national to be saying, hey, look, <laughs> the mongrel mob are saying vote Labour. I think that's fantastic politics. But meeting them? No. MP should meet each and every one of us because we're citizens. We live in a democracy. We live in a small country. And in particular, AMPs should especially take care to meet those of us who are on the margins, because that's what maintains social cohesion, the fact that you can be a part of a society, even though you're in a very small fringe minority, you can still should be able to go and see your local representative in our parliament, or they should be able to come and see you. Absolutely. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text, 2057. Email me at inbox at radio. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Great show. We had, it was fantastic to hear from Dr. Michael Johnson. Uh, very, very insightful. And oh my goodness, we're going to have to take a great deal of interest in this curriculum development and what's happening in our schools. Always fantastic to catch up with Wally Richards, our gardening guru. And what a wealth of knowledge and more than that, a wealth of insight into how we live compared to how we lived not that long ago and what it has meant 
And we're sort of, it's becoming apparent, I think. Uh, I'd be very interested in your thoughts and considerations about how we lived when we were kids, when you were kids, when your parents were kids, what we ate, how we ate, um, compared to now. Be great. I think we're going to do more of this in the show. Text me your thoughts, 2057. Email me at inbox at reallycheck.radio. And thank you so much for listening. This is Real Talk from Rodney Hyde signing out. See you next week.